CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Torn between two lovers. I added the guitar like Jimmy Page. Like Led Zeppelin did it. Yeah, torn between two lovers. The Ben Jarofsky show starts now. <laughs> It is Thursday, November 7th. Boy, that is annoying sounding, Ben. Those <laughs> symbols you're doing there. And live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, In These Times, writer Miles Camp-Lassen is back. And we welcome political consultant, PC Peter Cunningham. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Trash Talk Thursday, and here's why. Well, Tuesday's election results have revived Democratic spirits. Man, we're Democrats in a funk. I know this because I live among many Democrats. I'm surrounded by Democrats. And everywhere I was going for the last couple of weeks, Democrats were starting to say, I got this feeling, Ben, that Trump's gonna win i got this feeling that's ben. a new impression you got there is that anybody in particular anybody no, that's we know just like democrats in the doldrums you know i got this feeling ben trump's gonna win uh, this feeling, oh, he can't we can't beat him he's so good he's so strong oh i'm so depressed oh that's how democrats have been talking for the last two weeks d you know they like read an article in the paper where trump goes has a rally and you know go, you know one of those trump rallies where he beats his chest i'm donald trump yeah yeah, woo! Democrats are losers. Woo! You know, fake news. Woo! The crowd's going crazy, and they're throwing their hands in the air, wearing their little MAGA hats and everything. And then over here in Chicago, Democrats, oh, we're gonna lose. <laughs> ben, we're gonna lose. Oh, that's you know what it is. Part of the reason is some of these Democrats that I talk to are not fight fans, D, and they don't follow wrestling, for instance. They don't know what Donald Trump is doing. Is he's stealing a page from wrestlers and boxers that trash talking before a fight. So he, you know, he's mastered that art. I give him credit for that. He's really good at that. But it doesn't mean that the, you know just because you pound your chest before a fight doesn't mean you're going to win the fight. Before every Super Bowl, pretty much the, what there's at least one guy in a losing team that says guaranteed we're going to win. And guess what? They lose. All right, it's just trash talking before a sporting event. That's what Donald Trump's doing. But so many Democrats, they're so scared. They still have post-traumatic uh, stress disorder from the 2016 election. So they just think they're going to lose automatically. It doesn't even matter what the polls say or what the most recent election results are. They just think they're going to lose because they hear Trump trash talking. Democrats are so scared right now. Anyway, 
So what happened on Tuesday? First of all, Virginia, we talked about it already. The Dems swept the house. They swept it. They got the house. They got the Senate. They got the governor's seat. That means they get to draw the maps. Terry Cosgrove is so happy he's doing backflips. I said that yesterday. I'll say it again. The fair map movement in the state of Illinois. Even with that hurt leg, he's doing some backflips. He is so happy. He sent me a couple texts yesterday or emails. His, his preferred uh, form of messaging is email, just so you know that. Uh, and uh, he was very happy. Uh, the Dems get to uh, draw the map. As I've said many times, the whole fair map movement uh, in the state of Illinois is a game for suckers. Uh, the Dems, uh, Dems should get involved. They should be very careful and cautious because they're getting suckered by Republicans who have no interest in creating fair maps. They just want to create Republican maps. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, Andy Bashir's the Democrat, has defeated the incumbent Republican Matt Bevin. Uh, and that was Trump's candidate, Matt Bevin. What well, God? Damn, what a bad candidate he was. But anyway, Trump had gone down to Kentucky, what was it, on Monday, uh, and made the race for governor all about him. Where was that quote? He went down to Kentucky, and he said that uh, Matt Bevin has to win because uh, if— the evil media would say, quote, Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. And you can't let that happen to me. That's what he said. It was all about him. What happened? The voters uh, elected Andy Bashir as the Democrat and defeated Bevin. So if it was all about Trump, Trump lost. All right. Now he's singing a new song. <laughs> I got to give Trump credit, man. He is something else. Uh, he tweeted out, won five of six elections in Kentucky, including five great candidates that I spoke for and introduced last night. Like, his endorsement had anything to do with any of that because the main endorsement that he gave was for a candidate who lost. So he's just trying to trash talk his way out of that. You know, he's singing a new song. But here's the deal. This is going to go on for a full year. It's going to be the same old thing with Donald Trump. And this and ratcheted up with impeachment heading his way. Every time impeachment gets a little closer to him, every time there's uh, an important witness that comes out to testify against him, he's going to hold another rally. He's going to pound his chest. He's going to proclaim that the people are with him and that he's going to win again. He's going to mock and taunt and make up names about nicknames about the Democratic candidates. And my only request to you, Democrats, is stop being so scared. The man is all talk. We got a great show today, everybody. Miles Comp-Lassen will be here from In These Times. Now, we have this thing set up. We didn't really, I didn't intend to do this, but it sort of happened this way. Miles will be talking about some of the the election results of this week, uh, political trends in this country, talk about the Chicago teachers uh, strike uh, and where we are going and the best direction to take Democrats in order to be victorious uh, in the coming year from a sort of a a lefty perspective. Uh, Miles is a regular visitor, as everybody knows, on Thursday. And then PC, Pete Cunningham, one of the few uh, ROM Democrats in the city of Chicago who actually likes me, uh, will be showing up and be giving his more mainstream centrist point of view so we can have a debate. And if you heard our uh, Benny J download uh, with Peter Cunningham that we did a few months back, uh, I'm sorry to, uh, you know let you down here but no he's not bringing his guitar a, a talented musician yeah here. pc is one of the few centrist democrats who could play the guitar so oh, a lot yeah. of people didn't know that and uh he's a, quite a good guitar player he sang a song the last time he was here and so i said uh pete bring your guitar back oh no bad name i think he's thinking that you know, I know you thought good singing was going to happen <laughs> on this show today sorry but it's not pc thinks oh they just like me for my guitar i'm gonna see if he brings me back if i don't bring the guitar well maybe so, you uh, and pete can do a duet of uh, today's song of the day. What was that song again? <laughs> Torn between two lovers. Ooh. Bing, 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 bing. You know
You know what? We have the piano in the corner there, okay. the uh, keyboard. Yeah, Maybe PC right. can play the keyboard. There you, you know? go. And we got the guitar. Of course, has no uh, in the corner there without strings. <laughs> no strings. A stringless guitar, you know? So anyway, we're going to have a great political debate of sorts between uh, two factions of the Democratic Party, uh, the centrist faction and the lefty faction. And I'm looking forward to that. But before we do any of that, the young man from Alton, the man they call a doctor with the news. Only you call me that. <laughs> How's it going? I'm Dennis. Let's unpack what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. First up, J.B. Pritzker. Today on our Illinois governor's schedule, a trip to the opening of Google's second office on Carpenter Street. And that's, of course, right here in Chicago. No offense, Pontoon Beach, Illinois. <laughs> but I don't see a Google uh, setting up shop in your town anytime soon. No, you know what I mean? it's not coming to Pontoon. Where is Pontoon? Pontoon Beach. Oh, uh, it's in Illinois. It's right near uh, where I grew up, by Granite City. There's a there? a lot of pontoons. <laughs> okay. Not one damn beach. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Pritzker's then off to Mundelein Village Hall for a bit, mm. then to Skokie's Illinois Science and Technology Park to highlight rebuild Illinois projects in Lake and Cook Counties. Mm. By the way, rebuild Illinois, a $23 billion infrastructure program. Yes, that's billion with a B. <laughs> On to the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot. No public events listed, and that's a good thing because, well, she has to talk with the press about today's breaking news. We talked about it yesterday. Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson, will he retire this week or won't he retire this week? Oh, my God, we've all been freaking out about it. Not really. The following comes from the <laughs> Chicago Sun-Times and Sam Charles. Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson announced... His retirement today. Yes, it happened. By uh, recalling his upbringing in Chicago and thanking the mayor who plucked him from obscurity and put him in charge of the department three and a half years ago. We have some quotes from the soon-to-be former superintendent. He's going to serve until the end of the year. And here's a quote you'll never hear from our host, Ben Jarofsky. Quote, <laughs> Rahm Emanuel saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Well, yeah, I, you know what? Let him have his moment with Rahm Emanuel there, giving a little credit to Rahm Emanuel. By the way, just, can I just go back to that other story that you just talked about, Google, just for a moment before we do the Eddie Johnson rundown day? Can I just do that? Thank you, sir. Yeah. Um, I just want to say congratulations to all the economic development gurus in the city of Chicago who oversee the development of our city. Uh, congratulations to Google. They decided to come to the city of Chicago. Congratulations to whoever owns the building, the landlord. Uh, and not th it's not far from here, by the way, in the West Loop. So congratulations to one and all. All right. Good job. And I'm, I can understand why uh, Governor Pritzker would go there to clip the ribbon, et cetera, et cetera. But let me just point this out. No public dollars, as far as I could tell, were expended to bring Google here. All right, I'm just throwing this out there. So if Google will go to the West Loop, if the West Loop is such a booming area, why do we have to spend all that money to subsidize the development of, of the Lincoln Yards development, which is just down the street? Just throwing that out there, D, okay? Throwing that out there. If the city is developing on its own, if the Googles of the world are coming here as opposed to, what's the name of the town in downstate Illinois? Pontoon Beach. Pontoon Beach. If the Googles of the world are saying, hmm, Pontoon Beach or the West Loop, and they deter decide the West Loop, then why do we have to give them more money to come here, D? Just throwing that out there. You know, sometimes people in the city of Chicago, just they have a faulty memory. 
you know, they go, oh, wow, what a great city we are. Google's coming here. And they forget that just, uh, what was it, six months ago, we had to spend, uh, dedicate, I should say, $1.3 to get uh, Lincoln Yard here. So just throw that out there. Think about it, everybody. All right, back to Eddie Johnson. Just had to throw that out. Anything you'd like to say about that? Eddie Johnson uh, announced No, Eddie Johnson today. owes his political career. The, the line you said, he owes his, uh, his appointment to Rahm Emanuel. So I think uh, it's only appropriate Eddie. thank Rahm Emanuel. I'm a big believer in loyalty, D. People do things for you. You know, you should shout, give him a shout out and thank them and show some appreciation. And uh, so, yeah, Rahm Emanuel appointed him. It was in the aftermath, of course, of the uh, uh, the release of the Laquan McDonald video. <laughs> when the last police chief, uh, Gary Big Mac McCarthy, your favorite police chief, uh, was uh, Rahm had to figure out, hmm, who do I blame for uh, the Laquan McDonald video surfacing at this time after it's been repressed for all these months? And who do I blame for uh, the antipathy and the hostility to the uh, the city that was erupting all over because it was apparently obvious, it was obvious to everybody that there was a contrived case manufactured regarding the shooting of Laquan McDonald. I know, I'll throw Gary McCarthy under the bus. So he threw Gary. It's interesting, I never hear Gary McCarthy go around thanking Rahm Emanuel for seeing something in him that he didn't see himself, you know, because Rom gave Gary McCarthy his his big break too, D. Right. So anyway, um, it's I think it's appropriate, D. That uh, Eddie Johnson thanked Rahm Emanuel. So what about that final quote? Rahm Emanuel saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Uh, do you ever see yourself saying that in your uh, about Rahm Emanuel? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I don't think Rahm Emanuel ever saw anything in me that he would like. You know what I'm saying? So uh, although there was one point where we uh, I interviewed him and we shared a, a, a ride, we drove around the city when I was doing a profile. Rahm was really good at that. Like when he was doing profiles, reporters were doing profiles of him. He would ask, well, "Why don't you come for a drive?" That's like the standard. I'm sure thing. that went really well based on uh, the relationship you have now with him. <laughs> I think that was the high point of the relationship. Although the driver was kind of fast, I would every now and then ask, could you go a little slower? <laughs> All right, let's keep doing quotes here from Eddie Johnson here. Quote, it's time for someone else to pin these four stars to their shoulders. Uh, he says here, these stars sometimes feel like carrying the weight of the world. Of course, he was joined by Mayor Lightfoot at his announcement. Uh, we have quotes from Mayor Lightfoot as well. I tried finding an audio of this. Uh, again, trouble finding it, so we're just going to read the quotes here. Uh, here's Lightfoot uh, talking about Eddie Johnson. Oh, no, he had one more uh, quote about Mayor Lightfoot, Eddie Johnson did. He said, I am privileged to call her now my friend and also my boss, Johnson said to the mm. mayor. All right, now the Lightfoot quotes about Johnson. The mayor said to the top cop, quote, it's an understatement to say the position of superintendent is demanding, she said, adding, we wish him nothing but the best. She also praised his dealings with the public and his decision to boycott a recent speech in Chicago by President Donald Trump, saying that Johnson showed this city over and over again, but particularly in that act, that he loves this city and he will fight for our values no matter what. Mm. Yeah, well, Eddie Johnson is a pretty astute uh, political player here in the city of Chicago. Uh and I do give him credit for uh, boycotting that Trump speech, but it was a politically astute uh, decision as well. Donald Trump obviously is exceedingly unpopular in the city of Chicago as well. He should be. He's always using Chicago to trash Democrats and Democratic leaders, and uh, he's always talking about the crime in Chicago. He never does anything to help us solve the crime. So it was politically astute move by Eddie Johnson, and I also think the right one to boycott that speech. I also remember D. Eddie Johnson. He's a very, uh, very astute political player in general. If you recall when uh, Father Flager had the march to sh that shut down the uh, Dan Ryan, when was that? That would have been... 
God, uh, those were our uh, our radio days. Yeah, radio days. <laughs> I can tell you that much. Yeah, already. it was radio days, and it was summer. So I want to say it was the early summer of twenty eight. Perhaps whatever it was, uh, it was before. No, it was before the. Um, it was before the mayor mayor all. I should say uh, 2018. Anyway, uh, and he joined the marchers uh, when they uh, he joined Flager uh, in that march. So it was a very astute move uh, by um, uh, Johnson in that moment too, standing with Flager and the marchers as opposed to being with Bruce Rauner, who was the governor, was ordering the marchers off the the Dan Ryan and saying they were a threat to safety. So he's a very uh, shrewd uh, political uh, player. You have to be if you're going to be the police superintendent. It's a very political job. And it's exceedingly difficult in the city of Chicago for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that the Fraternal Order Police, which is the largest union uh, for the police officers, uh, it has moved to the right uh, and has essentially allied itself, politically speaking, with the Trump faction, whatever there is in the city of Chicago. So... You know, to have the union, uh, which represents your workers, be so far out of the mainstream of Chicago voters, that puts you in a very awkward situation as well. So I think overall, Eddie Johnson deserves high marks from the political end of the job, D, handling the political end of the job. So we've heard from the guy who's resigning, Superintendent Eddie Johnson. We've heard from the mayor who has to deal with the next chore, replacing him. Eh, if it ain't one thing, it's another. Hey, Mayor Lightfoot. Uh, but what about those in Lori Lightfoot's city council? Well, wonder no more, because they have weighed in. And if you're a Benny J. Show devotee, you know what that means. Yes, it's time for another episode of Ben Jarofsky's favorite daily Chicago political soap opera. It's time for a mayor and her alderman. <laughs> a mayor. Alderman. I like the little fadeaway. Alderman, Alderman, Alderman. Uh-huh. <laughs> the following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times <laughs> and the one and only Fran the Woe Man Spielman. Alderman interviewed Thursday. Today, would like to see Mayor Lori Lightfoot choose an insider to replace retiring Superintendent Eddie Johnson. We have a quote here from Alderman Matt O'Shea. Ben, pop quiz. Who's the Alderman? Matt O'Shea, mean what, what board word is he from? <laughs> <laughs> alderman Matthew O'Shea is the Alderman, as you know, of the 19th Ward. Now for 10 trivia points. What guest, frequent guest on the Ben Jarofsky show, grew up in the 19th Ward? Oh, my Lord. Oh, Doris Davenport. I'll give you, she's from New York. Oh. Uh, I'll give you a hint. This guest will be here today. Pete Cunningham. No, PC is from PC's from New York too. Denise at the front desk. No, uh, no, Denise is. I can't believe I know these things. Denise is from the southeast side of Chicago. She went mm. to uh, Chicago Vocational High School. The guest coming in today. Good God, all that reefer you smoked back in the day. Miles Conflasson. Oh, yeah, he's from Beverly, 19th Ward. That's correct. Thank you, uh, Robert Mueller. All right. Alderman interview Thursday said they'd like to see an insider replace retiring superintendent Eddie Johnson. Here's Matt O'Shea. Quote, we need to make sure morale stays up and that the men and women in the police department believe someone's got their back. If you talk to them, they would say it should be someone from inside. Mm, okay. Well, the last one was from Eddie Johnson was on the inside. All right. All right. We got here. It says uh, it's increasingly more difficult to be in law enforcement. If we could find a law, a strong leader in the ranks, someone the men and women know and trust, that would be a smoother transition. Well, you know, there's an argument to be made for that. Uh, of course, there's no great corruption right now uh, erupting. Uh, with I'm trying to think of, of 
like scandals in the past where a mayor would say, I have to go outside of the city. Then there was always the struggle. You bring in an outsider. The outsider is trying to figure out the city, learn the city, get the ropes. And then everybody's trying to take advantage of them because they think uh, the new boss is weak. So there's always, <laughs> it's always a little difficult for an outsider. I can't, I'm trying to think of an outsider. Came to, uh, Gary Big Mac McCarthy did a pretty good job of acclimating himself with the police department. Uh, uh, and by the time he was unpopular, as I recall, near the end of his uh, term with the police department, but as soon as Rob threw him under the bus, his popularity rose, I guess. What's that saying, D? Uh, the, uh, the, the, wait, how does that go? Uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or whatever it is. So that's how it is with Gary Big Get the bong out. All right. If Lightfoot <laughs> is open to choosing Johnson's successor yeah. from within the ranks, all the O'Shea has a dark horse candidate whom he believes that has pedigree in him. So it's a male. Before we find out his pick, Ben, do you have any uh, picks? No. No, uh, that, this is all. not one thing I. This is not one thing I do. Uh, you know, this is this is a common game uh, that people who really are obsessed with the uh, Chicago Police Department play. Well, there's this guy and that guy. Like the uh, Sam Charles did a great job in today's Sun Times with Fran Spielman of of putting on the the leading contenders, and they like they know these people. Like the, Eugene Williams. Do you know who Eugene Williams is? No. Okay. He was a CPD. My fixture. guess was Doris Davenport a couple he, minutes ago. No, that of was course terrible. I don't know that. Uh, Eugene. <laughs> From New, for actually from New Jersey, but she, uh, uh, her family's roots are in New York. Pete Cunningham, I believe, is don't quote me from Bronx. Uh, Denise, you had her right. She is from the southeast side of Chicago. Went to Chicago Vocational School. So you're right about. It. But Eugene Williams was a CPD fixture. Anyway, the point is, is that in, people who really follow this stuff have like cops that they know and they've cultivated and that are sources to them. So a lot of times, you know, they'll oh, hey, do you want to promote the, the sources? Say, hey, put my name in the paper. <laughs> It would help me. So, you know, you throw the name out there. So anyway, I don't I don't really know a lot of uh, top cops, Steve. All right. Well, this O'Shea fella does his dark horse candidate, the deputy chief of detectives, Brendan Dinahan. Uh, well, he Brendan Dinahan is not on the list of Sam Charles and Franz Spielman. So, hey. Matt O'Shea, get together with uh, Sam Charles and Franz Spielman and uh, put that out there. It's interesting. Maybe that's, uh, maybe, what is that, a trial balloon? Uh, you know, I'm so cynical and jaded, D. I'm just thinking that uh, Lori Leifer got on the phone with Matt O'Shea and goes, drop that name, get it out there, and see what the reaction is. Okay. You know. All right. Uh, O'Shea continues here. He says, quote, on Dina Han, he's sharp. He cuts through the BS, and he didn't say BS. Very candid, this O'Shea. He's respected. He's a hard worker, and he's done it all on his own. He's done it all on his own, just being the real Wait, tell me, are you reading from the Sun-Times yeah, there? Yeah. And did, did they spell out the, the word he said? No, no. They put B-U-L-L-S hyphen T. Holy, let me try to figure out what that could be. Shut Ben, don't even go there, buddy. You've been doing really well and not cursing as the host of this oh, show. I'm just trying to think what it could... You know what it is. Ship? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's a P, not a P. Hmm, let me think about it. Okay, go on. As a political pragmatist, uh, O'Shea acknowledged Dina Han is a long shot, adding, quote, I don't think a white Irish guy is going to be superintendent anytime oh, soon. Okay, well, there you go. That just sums it up. So I guess what, O'Sh what O'Shea's doing, he's, he's, uh, he's, there's a lot of cops in his ward. 
Uh, it's the southwest side, the Beverly area, um, and Mount Greenwood area. And so what he's doing is giving a, a shout-out to a lot of Trump voters out there. I think there's a precinct in the Mount Greenwood, D, that had the highest percentage of votes for uh, Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So that's Matt O'Shea's way of saying, hey, I see you. I'm for you. In my humble opinion, this would be the best guy. Uh, but, you know, the politics of Chicago are such that he won't he won't be named. So I'm just going to name him to win over my uh, constituents. There you go, D. We figured it out. How about that? So, uh, you know, interesting politics being played by Matt O'Shea. All right. The article continues here. Nearly four years ago, the city council's Hispanic caucus was upset that acting police superintendent Joss, uh, John Escalante was left off the police board's list of three finalists forwarded to and subsequently ignored by then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel. This time around, Hispanic caucus chairman Gilbert Vegas doesn't have a horse in the race, even though he would prefer to see Johnson replaced by an insider. Under, here's the quote from Vegas here. Under Superintendent Johnson's leadership, you've seen a commitment to diversity. You've seen him promoting Latinos in order to get that experience. There are some Hispanic people in the deputy chief and chief positions, but I don't know if they're ready to step up right now. Mm, yeah, well, I uh, my, my attitude is uh, that you really should try to get the best qualified person for the job uh, and not try to make it seem, you know, one of these games where, where we're going to show uh, Viegas that he has the clout, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and I don't think it doesn't sound like Viegas is playing that game either. By the way, I'm not even quite sure that how important it would be uh, to Hispanic voters across the city uh, if it if it be a Hispanic candidate name. So I don't think it's the biggest issue in the Hispanic community as it is in the black community. So there you are. That's what's going on locally in Chicago and or Illinois. Of course, we'll keep you posted on those stories as today's program rolls along. Hey, if anyone listening on the YouTube live stream chat has any suggestions for the new top cop, i got a feeling this isn't something that our uh, listeners are really too keen on here. But hey, feel free to weigh in. If you got some suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Don't go anywhere because coming up to, after the short little break, our good friend Miles Camp Lassen of In These Times Magazine will be joining us. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F-M as in Mary, A-N as in Nancy, 
U-E-L-P-I-A-N-I-S-T.com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Miles Conflassen is in the studios here every Thursday uh, from In These Times, Jacobin Magazine, the 19th Ward, Beverly, Whitney Young, all those things. Before I bring Miles on, I have to say, uh, it's the best of issue for the Chicago Reader, my beloved reader. I've been working at the Reader for five billion years. And uh, so, uh, good news. And, no, it's just good news, D. I'm going to be a good sport about it. Best podcast was not our podcast. No. We, we got to fix this vote, man. How can I lose in my own hometown? Come on, reader, readers. Uh, anyway, so I have to be real. You know, I'm going to be a good sport about it. And the best podcast went to Being Earnest. No, please make this. Runner-up was being earnest. Please make this. That's Dennis's favorite podcast. I love it. Uh, and uh, so congratulations. Please make this. And I'm a good sport. You won. You're victi- victorious. Pick up the marbles, you mother beep. No, I didn't oh, say wow. that. Oh, <laughs> wow. Come on. That's not going to get but, us to the board next year. Now, now here's one. Uh, Miles be interested in this one. So uh, best elected official in Chicago. And the reader readers chose, drum roll, brrr, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the runner-up was Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa followed, and the finalists were Alderman Matt Martin, a frequent guest on this show. Carlos, a frequent guest on this show. Oh, yeah. Lori Lightfoot came on this show. One time, probably the only time. (laughs) And Lori Lightfoot, if you remember, Lori, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, you were very good friends with Dr. D at the uh, Labor Day parade. Remember that? Man, back in those days, nobody was talking to Lori Lightfoot except Ben Jarofsky and Dennis. Now she, of course, the mayor of the city of Chicago. Anyway, uh, so Miles, what do you make of that? Are either reader readers are uh, schizophrenic, (laughs) uh, or they uh, Lori Life with people stuff the ballot box because you have the the three finalists. You got uh, Anna Valencia, the city clerk, Matt Martin, the alderman, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, uh, and then uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Rosa and Martin, of course, are lefties. They're part of the... um, United Working Families. Yeah. Yeah. And Lori Lightfoot is more of a centrist. What do you make of this? Uh, I mean, that's that's a pretty wide political gulf. I think it shows there's, I mean, the reader is distributed across the city. Lori Lightfoot, she did win every ward in the city. She's still, you know, I think retains some popular. She's certainly the, the most well-known political that's figure. That's probably what it is. Because so, here's, here's you go. a popularity contest. All right. Now, let's see if you can guess. Do you know the answers to these things yet? Have I, haven't, I haven't seen All right. Here you I go. did see the, the only one I saw is my beloved uh, Hideout One Best Music Venue, which makes me Oh, okay. Happy. Timmy T's doing backflip right now. Uh, Tim Tutton, uh, the uh, one of the co-owners of the hideout. Anyway, best elected official in Cook County. Who do you think was victorious? Uh, I mean, Tony? Yeah. yeah. I'm Italian, man. This, you see, so you got Lori Best in Chicago, uh, Tony Best in Cook County. They ran against each other. I think what reader readers were saying, I don't know. We're just going to name the only ones we know. Uh, and so that's what they would. Here you go. If you can do this, I will buy you waffles at that waffle shop on okay. Madison. Uh, here we go. Who was in second place for Cook County? I hope that it was uh, Brandon Johnson. 
Cook County Commissioner now. Wow, that's a I dad. You're asking too much of people in the city of Chicago <laughs> to name a Cook County Commissioner other than the people in this room who you know political geeks. Kim Fox. Oh, okay. Well, so I, I, I'm kind of going along with the idea that um, it was. In terms of politicians, anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a popularity. I mean, what do you expect? It's hard for any alderman to become, you know, the most popular person in the city when they serve a ward, you know, one of fifty wards. So I think it kind of makes sense. I, you know, I haven't seen back uh, previous years. I'd imagine. I, I mean, I can't imagine Rom would ever have won such a poll, but I imagine it's people with uh, a citywide. You know, I can't. I platforms. It's funny uh, in the reader. I can't remember if Rom ever won. Uh, I know that uh, be a, bit a mayor, of a shocker. Pawar has been big. See, the categories have changed. I don't know if it's best alderman or best elected official. I know I remember a mayor Pawar, one who's the alderman of the forty seventh ward, uh, and he sent me an email, you know, a, t- a text. Of, hey, look at this. Uh, well, and- I imagine also some of these, some of the voting. The voting has been open for a while on this before the teacher strike, so possible some of these people voted before. Well, now you know, let's sides talk- were drawn. Let's talk teacher strike. Uh, I, um, you, you, re- you reminded me that you were in studio last Thursday when Dennis announced that a tentative yep. agreement. And I couldn't, I've lost track of when <laughs> things happened. Uh, and, uh, so what's your just sort of takeaway when you, well, it seems t- like it's been uh, longer than a week since, uh, that wrapped up. I mean, it was a, it was such a monumental, um, event in the city and really, you know, in the country in terms of, you know, the coverage that it received. And really that was the you know, introductory big political experience and test for Mayor Lightfoot, you know, after she got in, she has a number uh, now. I mean, you talked about Eddie Johnson being replaced. She's trying to move her agenda through Springfield. But, uh, you know, the takeaways that I saw from this were there was not much uh, pro CPS, pro Lightfoot administration spin. I saw in, you know, national coverage of this. It seems like the takeaway is the teachers, um, it, it was kind of always going to end this way, I think, in, in the sense that the, the teachers were not going to accept a contract that did not address um, the basic demands that they had around class size, around um, staffing, and um, trying to build in some of these other protections like sanctuary schools and so forth. And, you know, from the beginning, uh, the mayor's negotiating position was just, we're not going to do that. You know, we there's no money. This is our last offer. This is our best offer. She's going, she's sending letters to Jesse Sharkey saying, go back to school. All this kind of provocations. Um, and ultimately, of course, you know, they folded not as much as they could have. I mean, some of the teachers, obviously, the wanted to stay out on strike. They still haven't ratified uh, the agreement, though I think it will ultimately get uh, ratified. Um, people were, you know, not willing to go back to school until they got some of their demands met. And certainly there's, they, you know, they got $35 million for class size. Mm-hmm. They got, you know, um, protections around seniority. They got, you know, all kinds of things that were not in the initial offer. So I think there's no way to look at it other than the teachers went on strike. They won more, you know, Lightfoot capitulated and as did CPS and a number of these issues. And as a result, you know, kids are back in class. The next five, it's a five year contract for the next five years. We're going to see more and more investments in our public schools. That's, you know, complete sea change from where things were during the last teacher strike in 2012 when it was all kind of defensive efforts to resist cuts. And, you know, you saw the charter school movement mounting at that time. Now there's, you know, basically a moratorium on new charters that are approved by the district. So it's really is, I think, changed the way that um, public education is going to be seen in this town. And 
um, the teachers are to thank for it. I mean, it would not have been possible. And, you know, anybody who says that at this point that like the teachers were being selfish, that this was some selfish thing, just look what happened. I mean, they sacrificed six days of pay, which I think said like that, you know, added up to about 3% of their pay to get lower class sizes for students, to get, you know, more staffing, more social workers. So I can't, you can't look at it. I don't think any other way than the teachers made a pretty big sacrifice on this. And what's really upsetting is you see the rhetoric coming out of uh, the administration saying they're going to save, what, $70 million from <laughs> these six days. These are savings. As Stacey Davis Gates said at your first Tuesday show, it's theft. You know, that's just that money that would have gone to teachers that they're not paying them out. So it's not really savings. I mean, that's such a uh, austerity-minded uh, way of looking at how uh, the city budget works. Well, what it shows is that uh, this larger political struggle is continuing. I don't even know if... See, I'm going to think this through before I say this, Miles. I don't even know if, if political is the right word to use to describe the struggle. I keep thinking it's personal. and But the, but it, it folds into the political. Uh, the guest coming on after you will be Peter Cunningham, who is more of a centrist Democrat. So I pretty much, I, the way I've booked today's show is I'm going to be asking you the questions, getting your responses, and then ask the same questions from the centrist sure. and see what he says. Let's get the kind of interesting contrast. Uh, but how do I put this? The, the, uh, Dennis's favorite editorial board, the Chicago Tribune. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just did <laughs> Big fan of that. What is it, Cass? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to do that. I didn't mean to do that, but I just had to. No, I love it. Uh, the Chicago Tribune editorial board uh, claimed there was a silent majority of Chicagoans yeah. who believed. I just, uh, it's this and, Nixonian language. Yeah, you know? and, and Maya just went on a great riff the other day about how... Um, worthless the tribune is and how nobody nobody reads it and they uh, the editorial board that is not the mm. great journalists that work for it uh and the paper there's uh, the, the actual reporters who do the work yeah. um and but you know i do believe that they represent a mindset in the city of chicago i do believe that uh they speak to um, a certain segment of the population that just has a knee-jerk uh hostility to the teachers union so what's your sense of it what's your sense of how the it plays out politically in the city of chicago uh between people who just have that knee-jerk sense uh that they don't like the teachers and people like me i'm just very much open about it pretty much Anytime the teachers go on strike, I'm going to be with the teachers. And this was back in the days when they were led by union leaders, Miles, who didn't even like me. Okay, so it's just so how do you view it? What's your sense of how Chicago falls? It's hard for me to imagine. I mean, teachers are everywhere, right? That's the one thing about there's not an interest group. You know, these are uh, 25,000 Chicagoans that have to live in the city. They're spread out across um, every neighborhood, every ward. And they're working class people. You know, the teachers are not rich. People might you know, say, oh, they make more money than me or something. T- teachers are working class people. And they are, um, you know, the people that are that make up Chicago. They're the people that some are reading the Tribune, maybe not the editorial <laughs> pages of it, but certainly the, the journalism and the media class in the city. I mean, the people that run the editorial boards, they're they're trying to protect uh, the vision of Chicago that it was really set forth, I think, 
um, by Daly, but certainly by Rom as well, of building this world-class city, as they call it, which is basically bringing in as many corporate headquarters as possible, building up these glitzy luxury developments like Lincoln Yards, um, having Chicago be the city of the future, which uh, has become at the expense, of course, of the poor and working-class people that have made Chicago such a vibrant cultural hub for you know our entire lifetime. So I don't think that it's a surprise that they are uh, against uh, any attempts to redistribute money and redistribute resources in the city towards the people that need the most, which are the students that attend uh, Chicago public schools, who are 90% people of color, who are, you know, tend to be low income, um, the, the people that, you know, are expendable essentially to the types of folks who you want, you know, who work at Sterling Bay and want to see us, you know, build more skyscrapers. Um, that we've seen how that's played out. And in some cities, you know, like New Orleans, when they rebuilt uh, public education, really, there was taken an ax to and it was, you know, new charter schools. Now, what we've seen in Chicago is the CTU organized those charter schools and got them into uh, unions themselves and are working to build in protections for students and for teachers. So there's actual longevity, you know, in charter schools, you see this massively high turnover rate because of the conditions in the schools, the treatments of teachers and so forth. So I think that that's, you you know, I'm not surprised that this is how it's played out, that, you know, the uh, John Casses of the world are, you know, screaming at the teachers for being too selfish and, you know, they should have taken the deal and everything like that. But they're showing a different uh, vision of how social justice unionism can play out. And I think that that's going to be taken up by more unions um, as the years progress. I mean, that's one of the huge takeaways for me from this strike was the ability of local seven of SEIU to stand with um, the CTU and show like labor solidarity in action and say, we're going to stay on the picket lines until you have a contract. It's something that the business class in the city is not used to. You know, they're used to kind of a divide and conquer strategy. And that certainly played out during the 2012 strike when 73 and CTU were kind of, you know, at each other's throats. This time it's complete opposite. They were they were standing in solidarity. The um, mass protest they had outside of the Lincoln Yard site. Uh, a, a day or two before the strike ended was just filled with red and purple shirts because it was people, you know, SEIU already had a tentative agreement at that time, but they were still out in the freezing rain uh, with the teachers. So that's that, I think, strikes fear into the heart of the kind of corporate class of the city that would much rather have workers uh, fighting one another while they're scheming to build their, you know, new luxury villas in the city that uh, will not be open for business to people like you and me. Yeah. I, and I also do, I, I also think that there's a, a section of Chicago that's really invested in Lori Lightfoot succeeding. Even if it's just a psychological investment, they like her, they voted for her, uh, and uh, she represented something they wanted to see at the forefront of Chicago. And so the teacher strike was neg negative news for Lori Lightfoot. So I think there was a knee-jerk reaction. Some of my dear friends had this reaction. You know, their teachers were making Lori look bad. The teachers... Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'll just say I'm invested in Lori Lightfoot being successful, but, you know, it's just successful at what? You know, I think she should be successful at, you know, creating the kind of city that she talked about on the campaign trail, one where there's equity and one where there's justice and one where we have, you know, the resources we need to be able to build our neighborhoods back up so that they're not completely disinvested in and there's no resources for them. So I'm invested in her being successful, but not successful at just doing, you know, the classic corporate giveaways like Lincoln Yards and, um, 
you know, approaching politics as if it's a business, you know, and that's, I think, unfortunately, what we're starting to see. I hope that that does not come to define her mayorship. And I hope that she fulfills a lot of the campaign uh, promises she made. But even that the, even, you know, this issue around the real estate transfer tax, I was at public meetings where she said she was going to prioritize funding, you know, homeless, uh, homeless alleviation programs through that program. And now there's, you know, people in the state legislature saying, you know, follow through on that basically. And she says, no, we need that money for the budget. That would be irresponsible to earmark it all for one thing. Well, we have a homelessness crisis in the city and we need, you know, bold solutions to uh, help solve it. So that's an example, I think, where she could be successful, but I don't want her to be successful at doing things that I think are going to make the city less equal and less just. Well, Fran Spielman from the Sun-Times wrote a very good column or analysis not long ago talking about the difference between campaigning and governing. Uh, and she pointed out many, went down a list of things that Lori had promised when she was running for office and how she's changing. It's a good column. I urge everybody to read it. All right, let's go move national. You wrote a very interesting article for In These Times about the Kentucky gubernatorial race. I've talked a lot about it uh, two days in a row. I took great delight. Andy Bashir's the Democrat, edged out Matt Bevin, uh, who was the incumbent Republican. This guy was a Trump uh, Republican, if there ever was one, uh, a forever Trumper. Trump always talks about never Trumpers. Yeah. This guy was like a forever Trump. And uh, President Trump went down to Kentucky on Monday, the day before the election, and he said, "This is all about me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if 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 old boy Bevin losing is it's the greatest loss to uh, the the Trump presidency of all time. So you got to do it for me, do it for the Gipper, so to speak." <laughs> and uh, Bashir's beat him. Yeah, well, uh, he's still in classic uh, Republican fashion. He refuses to concede, of course, and so um, you know these he's, they're doing a recant. It's not an actual recount yet, so the AP has not officially certified it, but it's 5,000 votes at least separating uh, the two of them right now. So I think it's quite clear that Bashir is on top. He's already started, you know, moving into transition uh, team period and everything. And Bevan, you know, this is the same guy who, speaking of teacher strikes, you know, there was these teacher there were these teacher walkouts earlier this year across Kentucky, these sick outs that uh, teachers had that shut down districts across the state. And Bevan's response to that was to say that they were basically allowing for sexual assault to occur. You know, he said he had this quote saying, I guarantee a, a child has been sexually assaulted. He talked about them getting poisoned, all these horrific things. Uh, he was blaming the teachers taking labor action on. And this was, you know, just vile language, I think. And it was rightfully seen as such. You know, it wasn't just Democrats and educators in the states that uh, were throwing their arms up. In response to that, even state Republicans were saying that that's disgusting language for him to use. And the teachers said, you know, remember in November, that's become a slogan of these teacher strikes across the country. And it's channeling this uh, labor action into the electoral arena. And it's something that we're seeing more and more of as these teacher strikes um, spread. I think we'll, you know, see it in Chicago as well. Once you get people riled up like that, you know, and they know who, then they see who their enemies are, you know, who's standing with who. Um, you saw the uh, turnout soared in urban areas and more progressive areas of the state, the same type of voters who, number one, are sick of Donald Trump, you know, a president that is just 
cannot find uh, a scandal. He doesn't, you know, throw his arms around. He's, you know, one of the most corrupt presidents ever, probably the most corrupt in terms of how he's uh, personally benefiting himself through the presidency. And then the Republicans are, you know, pursuing this insanely craven agenda. What uh, Bevan had done, he tried to institute these work requirements for Medicaid recipients. So you had to, you know, hit these benchmarks in order to receive basic health care programs. And this is the poorest people uh, in the in the state of Kentucky. Then the federal court threw that out. And so instead, he stripped the uh, vision and dental uh, coverage for Medicaid recipients across the state. It's kind of just a way to say, hey, screw you. You know, <laughs> this is somebody who clearly does not have the interests of working people in his state uh, in mind. So uh, I think that the voters saw that and they chose somebody who uh, they knew was going to take another direction. You know, Bashir's promise to make sure no teacher in Kentucky makes less than $40,000. He wants a $2,000 across the um, board pay raise for him. I'm not saying Bashir is uh, Bernie Sanders, no. but he's definitely a, this is deep red Kentucky. Yeah. This is Mitch McConnell's state and a Democrat just won the governorship. Yeah. And, and this, that's a good point because and it will, I'll be discussing this uh, throughout the day a lot in the coming months. Think about this. Kentucky symbolizes both aspects of the debate, both sides of the great debate that we've been having about what, how the Democrats should proceed. Think about this now. They had a very mainstream centrist candidate in Bashir's. You're right. He's no Bernie Sanders. All right. But that said, just it was a, a quick little uh, aside, he got painted as Bernie Sanders anyway. Well, th- that's a whole other point. Yeah. That's the one good thing that Pete Buttigieg said. Yeah, his agreed. greatest contribution, and he's, by the way, backing away from it, by the way, just Little, little shout out. We had a great interview yesterday with Henry Davis. It'll be a bonus. We're dropping this weekend, right, D? Henry Davis is probably Pete Buttigieg's biggest critic. He's a South Bend uh, councilman. But anyway, all right, going back to the story. No matter what a Democrat does, they're going to put AOC's head on his yeah. shoulders or her shoulders or Bernie. They're going to just yeah. say you're a commie or it's so. So it's like be yourself. All right, so Bashir's, you're absolutely correct. They painted him out to be this uh, wild eye radical socialist when he's a basic, your centrist Democrat. And yet, two things here, um, uh, 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 Miles, he got, they, they, they talk about two trends. One, great emphasis on suburban voters who had gone Republican in the past going Democrat for Bashir's, they say that was anti-Trump. And two, they talk about the turnout uh, that was um, inspired by the teachers who were in remember uh, in November attitude yeah. about how they're going to pay back. And in the way it is in Chicago, those are viewed as, you know, rivals. The way we, the cockamamie way we things do in the city of Chicago, this weird city that we have, uh, where, you know, a mayor feels compelled to be at war with the teachers union. It's, I, I guess that's, you know, you get a bonus or something in your salary if you do that. And all the, and all the mayor's supporters are always hating on the teachers union. But when you go down to Kentucky, the winning, it seems to be the winning ticket it's a combination of both. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's what we what we saw. I mean, teachers were uh, stark raving mad about this guy, and they you know showed up to the polls. The the I think it increased by like uh, almost double the turnout from the election in 2015. Um, it was over. It was like a mil, 1.4 million voters or something. I think it was like 700 thousand last time in 2015, which is the voters who selected Bevin. So uh, that includes some Republicans too, but it was primarily Democrats that were um, motivated to turn out. And I think that it has to do with 
people want to see a fighting Democratic Party. They want to see, you know, Democrats that don't just run as Republican light, even if they're not going to embrace a full, you know, Bernie Sanders left wing platform. They've got to be willing to, you know, fight this president because people are sick of him. I mean, he's got these insanely low approval ratings and he just keeps on digging in his heels every single day while he's in the midst of a very serious impeachment inquiry that just gets more and more serious by the day. I mean, these public hearings are supposed to start uh, next week. Bill Taylor is set to testify. There's news out today that John Bolton says he might he might be willing to testify. The House Intelligence Committee says they're not going to subpoena him, but he might you know agree to actually come in and testify against this president, which uh, who knows what could be revealed. I mean, I have been, you know, a massive John Bolton critic. I, I think was going to say, yeah. I think he's, you know, one of the most <laughs> psychotic warmongers of our time. And yet he has also called, you know, Rudy Giuliani's and Trump's scheming around this a drug deal. He said that, you know, what's going on with Zelensky and the uh, withholding of the funds for the Ukraine was uh, criminal behavior, essentially. So if he's willing to go on the record, we could start to see this snowball pretty quickly with the president. And even besides that, I mean, this is somebody who there's a report out today that um, over 5,000 children have now been separated at the border uh, since July of 2017 from their families. This is, you know, somebody who's ripping kids apart from their families at the border. This is a human rights catastrophe and crisis that Trump isn't just overseeing. He's bragging about, you know, he's he's proud of it. And I think, you know, no matter where you go in this country, um, immigration reform is popular and, you know, people have positive feelings about uh, immigrants in this country because they know that's what makes America, uh, uh, you know, a positive uh, force in the world when we actually do fulfill our obligations to the rest of the world. And so I don't think that this, uh, the Bevin strategy of just throwing your arms around the president is going to be very successful for Republicans if it didn't work in Kentucky. All right. You mentioned Mitch McConnell, and uh, he, of course, is the uh, majority leader in the Senate. Uh, He's the Republican who controls the flow of legislation through the Senate. He uh, bottles up Supreme Court nominees that the Democrats want, Merrick Garland uh, being the one I'm alluding to. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is perhaps the second most powerful politician in Washington after Donald Trump. could argue Nancy Pelosi would be in the mix too as well. Democrats have have been just so frustrated by his mastery of the legislative process and it's just bullying for the last, I don't know, six years or so. There's a theory, the Meredith Shiner theory, I call it Meredith Shiner because she's a, a journalist, came on the show and opined it, the first I'd ever heard. And she says that Mitch McConnell will turn on Donald Trump if he thinks that's what it's going to take to protect his majority in the Senate. And I said to her, no way, I will never see that happen. Donnie Trump's control over Republican voters is just too strong. Mitch McConnell will chicken out at every single uh, juncture. Now, in light of the fact that uh, Bashir's beat Bevin in Kentucky, even though Donald Trump went down to Kentucky on Monday and said, this is all about me. Do you think that Meredith could be right and that Mitch McConnell might do a flip-flop and throw Donald Trump under the bus? Well, I think the thing that you have to look at is whether, I mean, I don't think Mitch McConnell is pulling all the strings necessarily when it comes to how you know, Republicans across the country are running. He is controlling how they're voting in the Senate because he's the he's that's the what I'm talking leader. about in and terms of impeachment. Yeah, impeachment vote. Well, that'll be. Uh, it, it's hard for me to ever imagine that there, Donald Trump will get a fair hearing in the Senate because, I mean, not only does Mitch 
McConnell run the Senate with an iron fist, he also knows that the Donald Trump is still popular, massively popular among the Republican base, among people that vote um, in Republican primaries. That doesn't mean he's popular across the country, but you don't have to be when you have all, you know, you're running for Senate in uh, Georgia or something. You know, the people that are going to primary anybody who comes out uh, and opposes this president on the Republican side is going to, there's massive pressures there to conform and be willing to stand with the president. So until we see those numbers change, you know, the amount of the Republican base that is approving of President Trump, I don't think that the Mitch McConnell's behavior is going to change because what he wants to accomplish, he's accomplishing pushing through all these judicial nominees to these lifetime appointments that are going to change the bench um, to in a, in a conservative direction for decades and even generations to come. I mean, that's been Mitch McConnell's kind of grand goal um, throughout his entire career. So uh, as long as he's able to continue to do that, I do agree if he thinks that it's going to be threatened, if he sees that there's, you know, there's the Senate could flip in 2020, that might change his behavior. But it's really hard for me to imagine Republicans uh, fleeing from Trump rather than having his base um, get behind him yeah. further. Because that's one thing Trump is really good at is rallying his base, no, even if it his, is yeah. narrowing. It didn't work. Uh, he didn't rally enough of it to win in Kentucky on Tuesday. Tuesday. Uh, but for instance, let's go to the next state just uh, down the road uh, from Kentucky, Mississippi. And uh, I don't know if you wrote about Mississippi in your roundup, but in Mississippi, uh, Donald Trump went into and he did the same thing. He fired up. He had one of those uh, rallies that I was alluding to earlier in the show before you got here, uh, Miles, that scares the heck out of so many uh, <laughs> North Side liberals that I know. They get, oh my God, we're going to lose. They start sobbing because, you know, they see people cheering for Trump. And um, so he fired him up. And as a result, I think the gentleman's name is Reeves. Uh, Tate Reeves is the uh, uh, the, uh, the new governor, governor-elect of Mississippi, Republican, defeated uh, Attorney General Jim Hood uh, in that state. And so Donald Trump was successful there. The Democrats were hoping that they... Yeah. And this guy, Hood, I don't know if you re- followed this, this election. Maybe I read it in your article. <laughs> it could have been, I'm quoting you to you. But the Hood was a Democrat who ran as like, I love guns. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm against abortion. I mean, he was the most Republican Democrat in the world. Uh, and he was trying to convince... Trump voters that it wasn't a threat. Don't believe every. Don't believe it when they say I'm Bernie Sanders. And guess what, Miles? They threw him out. Yeah. So my what my I know what my takeaway from that is: Democrats be Democrats, because uh, this plan the like your Republican doesn't seem to work very well. I either. don't think it does either. I mean, I will admit, I think you have to you know that you you have to be able to run and win in your district in your state, and that requires some you know, changing of your rhetoric, maybe even your positions. But when it comes to very basic positions like universal health care, things like, uh, you know, tuition free college, $15 minimum wage, these are massively popular programs across the board, you know, including with uh, Republicans, let alone Democrats. I mean, polls are showing that uh, upwards of 75% of Democrats support some type of Medicare for all program. So when you see um, Rahm Emanuel taken to the pages of Washington Post to say, oh, that's going to be electoral suicide, you know, us taking up a massively popular program. <laughs> to me, it's just, you know, it's not just cynicism. It's yeah. just his own interests. Of course, he's, you know, as we know, he's an investment banker working for a bank <laughs> that partners with healthcare companies that are profiting off the current healthcare, private healthcare system. But, you know, this type of advice to Democrats yeah. to avoid popular programs, I just don't think 
that that flies. I mean, when uh, Beto O'Rourke was running for uh, Senate in Texas, he talked about universal health care, and he almost beat Ted Cruz in deep red Texas. So I don't think that these are um, issues that the Democrats need to deal with, and they should be willing to say, hey, yeah, we believe the government should be providing some basic services, some basic rights for our citizens. And if you want to call that socialism like they did for Bashir, um, go for it, you know, and let's let, let's see what happens. I mean, that's the thing is Bevin said that he's, you know, he has this class, dangerous class warfare ideology. Bashir is just talking about using government to provide, you know, Medicaid, mm-hmm. a basic program that all of Americans bought into. It's like this is the role of government. So if we can accept that, let's accept the government should provide health care to everybody. You know, I don't think that that's a hard argument to make for uh, Democrats across the country. And if you look at the polls that came out this week, Bernie Sanders is beating Donald Trump in the all-important states of Pennsylvania, of Michigan, of Wisconsin. These are the states that we need to win back if we're going to uh, defeat Don, uh, uh, Mr. Donald John did, Trump. Yeah, did you... All right, This now you've just segued into one of my favorite topics. Uh, and I think I've had this conversation with you. can't remember who I've had this conversation with. It, it may have been Micah. I, I just can't... I think it was might have been Micah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is uh, another writer for uh, uh, Jacobin. Uh, and... That is, is that there's a bias against Bernie Sanders on the part of the New York Times. So I can't remember who, which one of you said yeah, this Yeah, yeah, we, we, we both did that uh, talk, and Cindy Ember was what, the person we were talking about. Okay, the yeah, it was, correspondent. Yeah. So this, uh, the kid wrote the story for the New York Times, Nate Cohn, who's mm-hmm. their new pollster writer. Yeah. And it, he was, the, the theme of the story was that Bernie, uh, that Donald Trump was, was doing very well uh, in the key states he needed to win yeah. uh, to win an electoral victory, a, a, a re-election. He, Cohen's not even, doesn't matter what the overall vote is that Donald Trump is getting, will we'll probably lose by more votes uh, that whoever runs against him that he lost to Hillary Clinton, but he's doing very well in these uh, key swing states. Yeah. And, and then he got into this thing where, uh, like, the only guy who's, who's the best guy against was Joe Biden. And then when you look at the numbers, Bernie Sanders, <laughs> the New York Times, man, yeah. the Bernie Sanders was like whooping Donald Trump in almost yeah. every state. And then he goes, well, those are uh, not likely voters. I'm like, man, you <laughs> talk, man, to quote Lori Lightfoot, you keep moving the goalposts here, yeah. you know? So... What are you, what's your take of this? Well, uh, we have, I'll give a little plug. The, uh, the recent In These Times issue that just went to press, uh, which will be out soon, our December issue actually uh, is on an investigation into MSNBC's coverage of the presidential uh, primary and how they have completely uh, ignored and essentially blacklisted, uh, uh, given a blackout to, to Bernie Sanders in their coverage. He's gotten far, far less coverage than uh, Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, and the coverage he's gotten has. Uh, continued to be negative, more negative than it is about any of these other candidates. This isn't an outlier. This is, you know, become commonplace. This is defined uh, coverage of the candidates, both in 2016 and in 2020. And it's just because, you know, Bernie Sanders is not seen as a serious candidate by much of the pundit class because he is so far outside the box. I mean, today he released an immigration platform, which, uh, a plan that is far uh, more ambitious than anything that we've seen so far. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't even have an immigration platform uh, right now. All he said is that he doesn't want to decriminalize border crossings. And you saw him on the debate uh, with Jorge Ramos defending, you know, Obama's immigration 
immigration record, who mm-hmm. deported more immigrants than any president before. Uh, Bernie Sanders' plan just came out. He said he wants to, um, you know, take uh, ICE and uh, the Customs uh, Border Patrol and put redistribute their functions into other agencies so that we don't have these agencies that are simply dedicated to removing uh people from their uh, from their homes in in this country. And as I said, you know, we've gotten over 5000 children separated from their families at the border. This plan would would end that. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, energy, I think, behind the type of policies that are coming out. But the media doesn't love to cover that. You know, that's not their that that doesn't really align with what they see as this race, which now is, you know, they're they're building up Pete Buttigieg every, you know, every time they talk about it because he's flooded Iowa with money. You've seen is, is is what you've seen. And because of that, he has raised himself a few points in the polls. Uh, I think what you're going to see, though, is that the best organized candidates are the ones that are going to win the early states. And those are, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire um, and Nevada. And the, the people with the most volunteer power right now are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, certainly not Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg. Well, do you think uh, it'll come to a point where they'll finally turn on each other? Uh, people, uh, strategists were predicting this for a while. Every time we have a debate, I, uh, when we have the pre-debate show, we, people say, well, you, tonight's the night that Elizabeth Warren's going to go after Bernie, or tonight's the night that Bernie's going to go after Elizabeth Warren. I saw that poll, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, I can't remember where I saw it, but uh, it, it was uh, Sanders and Warren were 1-2, and then Mayor Pete and Biden were three, four, and everybody was bunched together. Yeah. I mean, I think the top person was like 23%, and the bottom person may have been Biden at 17%. Yeah. So it was just like a... Very close, yeah. Very close, and within the margin. So uh, do, you, do you sense that the lefties in the party, the left of the flank of the Democratic Party, is going to make this a serious fight? Well, I think that that's what primaries are for. Yeah. I think that the... what. I don't think that there's going to be outright, you know, quipping between uh, Sanders and Warren at the next debate because they have both been managed to retain their support without doing that. And the people that they need to get the support from are, you know, the rest of the candidates in the race, including Joe Biden. And there is a very different uh, voter makeup between the Bernie Sanders core supporters and Elizabeth Warren's right now. So I think that they'll need to win each other's voters at some point. But right now it's more about trying to, you know, get some of the support away from um, from Joe Biden, who, as we've seen, is falling in the polls. He can't raise money. I mean, that's the real issue is that they've started this. He's he's now given the green light to this super PAC, which he said he wouldn't take any yeah. corporate money. So this is be- this is going to become more of an issue. And the people that are pushing this uh, super PAC for him are the uh, people behind Third Way, which is the Wall Street funded uh, think tank that has you know supported so many uh, moderate candidates in the past and uh, healthcare executives that are going to be part of his um, super PAC. So, you know, I, I he can he only raised nine million dollar or only had nine million dollars cash on hand. Joe Biden, Joe Biden uh, versus 33 million for Sanders, 25 million for Warren. So that's a real problem for him to be able to compete in these states and compete through um, Super Tuesday, especially if he if he doesn't win Iowa. That's going to be a, a major challenge. I, for him. I, I probably the only lefty in America with fond uh, opinion of uh, uh, Joe Biden. That's correct. <laughs> I still like Joe Biden. I don't know what's the matter with me. I don't I couldn't imagine voting for him at all. But uh, I there's something about Joe Biden, Miles. I've been watching this guy in action. I know I've told you this before. I've been yeah. watching this guy in action going back to the 80s when he was the head of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And I was just watching the way he handled himself. Uh, and uh, 
I just something about the guy I just find appealing. But one thing I'll say is, that, you know, what the, I think the reason he's so appealing to so many uh, Democrats and so many Americans in general is because he was a vice president under Barack Obama, yeah. who was one of the most popular presidents we've ever had, you know, who left office without any scandals. And that's what you'll hear every single debate. Joe Biden say me and Barack, you know, he loves to do that. However, the, where that gets more problematic is like that uh, experience with Jorge Ramos, where he, you know, asked Biden specifically about the Obama administration's record on immigration and deportations. And he said his response was, I was the vice president, you know, so he's yeah. trying to no, he's, yeah, he's yeah. trying to have but have it both ways. I right? wish that was a terrible answer. You know, I remember that at the time. I'm like, oh, well, that looked like such a weasel answer. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, man, just it's unpopular now. Just take the hit for it now. You know, I've learned from my mistakes more thing. Our next guest is Peter Cunningham, who's been writing speeches for politicians for years and years. He knows how to, to get a politician out of a tough corner when they ask a question like that. Uh, he's also more of the centrist uh, uh, persuasion uh, than uh, you are, Miles, or I am. So it'll be interesting to I'm going to pretty much ask him every single question I ask you. It'll be really interesting uh, to hear uh, his responses and how different they are from yours. He also did not bring his guitar. Uh, many of our listeners are really profoundly disappointed. The last time he was on the show, he brought his guitar, and uh, but he didn't bring it today. But uh, So next time, he's got promises to bring his guitar. Okay. Well, last night I was uh, jamming out at band practice myself on, uh, on my Epiphone SG, so Wait, you know. Time out. You play rock and roll? I do, I do. Correct. I think <laughs> I announced. I remember last on a show was last must that. have been last winter. I was I, I was doing a, a show and I gave a, a shout out to it on the on this program. Wait, and I forgot. It's it's all those drugs I took as a kid. Yeah. Are you telling me? Uh, you play lead or are you rhythm? I'm more, I play more rhythm guitar, but I, you know, I riff out a little bit as well. So, do you like old music or are you? Uh, I like I, I, I like it. I like it all. So like you go, you know you know what a seventies you know seventies music yeah of course I mean I, we've talked about I was last la, last I week I just this. last week I was t- I had just been this? to the that's Bob- gonna be our next podcast uh, <laughs> a guest comes on it's called we talked about it already with Ben Jarofsky <laughs> how many guests say that to me Ben we talked about this last week man how can I remember talking to I was, ten people I, I, I was bragging about going to see the Bob Dylan show oh right yes indeed yeah yes indeed you yeah. did say that yeah and then I saw the lineup of the Bob Dylan songs that was in the Sun Times uh, the next or, or Tribune may have been the Tribune and Greg Cott yeah, yeah okay. and I uh, gave it a rave review oh, he yeah. said Dylan actually you could understand what he was saying which i don't believe i've been to many bob dylan concerts i couldn't understand the guy's a like lot a croaking toad uh i think greg cott went way overboard with that uh but it, they, it was yeah. a good show though it was a good show yeah anyway yes i do now it's coming back it's flooding back miles before you go tell folks where they can follow you read you and all that good stuff well i have a story out right now at, uh, in these times on the uh, kentucky election and some of the uh, broader takeaways from the election so read that at in these times.com also you can follow me on twitter at at miles k lassen very good miles is on the show every thursday and uh next on deck Peter P.C. Cunningham. Can't wait for this conversation. Stick around, everybody. We'll be right back. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. 
And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. It's Chicagoland's Adult Entertainment Playground. It's the world-famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. All right, everybody. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, November 7th is moments away. Oh, we got some people weighing in on the YouTube live stream chat. Ben, uh, earlier you said uh, just a few minutes ago, Bob Dylan said uh, he you said he sounded like a croaking toad. Yeah, oh, I could see what's coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, I, it's funny because on the live stream chat, <laughs> someone 20 minutes ago heard you singing and said the same exact thing about you, croaking toad. Uh, yeah. Well, what I have to concede that is as uh, bad as Bob Dylan is as a singer, he's way better than I am. Oh, yeah. So seating yeah. there. The oh my God. Show. Bob Dylan can at least sort of carry a tune. Not anymore. Uh, he's destroyed his voice. Hour number two of your program is moments away, but before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. All of you unions are awesome. Thank you so much for sponsoring this program. And, of course, today's show is brought to you by... The Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two. Let's go. It is Thursday, November 7th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, Benny J takes the deep dive, goes one-on-one with political consultant, around here we call him PC, Peter Cunningham. <laughs> and now your host, yeah, we just call him Ben. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Uh, Peter, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't get it out. Uh, Peter Cunningham is in the studio. He was here, Pete was here about a month ago. And uh, we did the, we sit down for about an hour. He played his guitar, didn't bring his guitar, as I pointed out, a little disappointed in that. Peter says, man, you just want me for a guitar. I'm just going to come without my guitar and see if you really like me. So no guitar today, but plenty of political discussion, as I pointed out in that last interview. Uh, Peter's more of the center than I am, has always been. I've known him for 20 years, Peter. 
Uh, and he's always been the guy, as I put out, I said it last time, that the Roms and the Dailies of the world would send a deal with me. And uh, that's kind of like his job to deal with lefties like Ben and Miles. Well, you never met Miles, but you, if you would, if he'd been around when you started out, you'd been dealing with him. Uh, so anyway, it's great to have you on the show because I believe, as much as possible, we should hear from all ends of the Democratic Party. How about that, Peter? I think that's a great philosophy. We're a Big Ten party, especially if we want to win. We're a Big Ten party. And we will discuss all of these things because that's on my mind these days. Uh, the lessons that can be derived from Kentucky, especially if we want to win, uh, what went down in Kentucky and what lessons the Democrats can learn from that. Uh, so we'll do that deep dive. Let's start with the local and uh, we'll start with the latest, latest news. Uh, Police Chief Eddie Johnson has stepped down. And one of the conversations, uh, Peter, I, I alluded to this the last time we were in the show. Uh, we would have these conversations about the role that police have traditionally and historically played in the city of Chicago, the role they played in politics, the uh, the sort of concern bordering on fear that mayors had about antagonizing the police department. We talked about that the last time you were on the show. So what, given all that, what direction do you would you like to see Lori Lightfoot go in uh, re- finding a replacement for Eddie Johnson? Well, I think, you know, one of the really, really big priorities for the next soup is to drive reforms that are needed. Everybody knows that the department is, you know, hidebound and uh, especially some of the specific divisions like the detective division. uh, They're not diverse. They're not uh, well trained. They're not. They don't seem to be very enlightened. Uh, there have been some attempts to do community policing and things like that, but they really haven't succeeded. Uh, they have a trust problem with the community. And so you need a superintendent who's who's going to be mindful of all that and isn't just going to be talking tough about cracking down because we know that that doesn't work very well. It doesn't uh, make the streets a whole lot safer. It, it breaks trust between the community, and, and it just leads to... Um, you know, low clearance rate in, in uh, the homicides because nobody will, you know, cooperate with the police. So we have, we have some really, really deep-rooted problems, and I know the mayor, uh, you know, was elected in part on her commitment to do something about that. So it's a really complicated choice, and, you know, in, one, in some sense you have a choice. Uh, someone inside who knows the department, knows the people, knows the city, knows the politics, knows the community leaders— and someone from outside who can shake things up. And we've done both over the years. Um, I think on balance, the outsiders have not worked that well. Uh, Got to think, which outsiders in, in our lifetime? Jody Weiss. Oh my goodness, one. Jody Weiss. <laughs> How can I forget Jody Weiss? Yeah. And Gary McCarthy. Big Mac, yeah. So, so you had two outsiders. Um, well, let me just say before you, uh, we throw, completely throw Big Mac under the bus. He was a very popular choice in that first six months, politically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you recall, I don't know if you were in Chicago or if you were in Washington with this, but uh, Mayor Rahm, in his infinite wisdom, decided it would be a good idea to bring the G8 summit to Chicago. And there uh, were protests in the streets of Chicago. It was like a lockdown situation. And Gary McCarthy, you remember, he stood behind the phalanx of big burly police officers on Roosevelt Road who were confronting uh, demonstrators. And he was widely popular. I think he was more popular than Rahm was at that time. So when you say that it didn't work out, I think in 
early days of Gary Big Mac McCarthy, it did work out. For a minute there, I guess it did. And I do know that that episode was well-received. And he was seen as the guy we needed at the time. And, you know, Rom chose him. Um, I was in Washington at the time, but I do know about the, about that. Uh, but ultimately, you know, his his view was we're going to crack down. He he had the same view when he was in Newark and in New York. He was seen as part of the came out of the kind of the Giuliani um, era of uh, New York policing. Eventually, went over to Newark, where he ended up in a consent decree over there. So, you know, on balance, he looked back, and it ultimately uh, ended with uh, the Laquan episode, and say, okay, was he the right guy for the job at the time? I don't think so. And as I look at it, in many ways, I thought uh, Johnson was a great choice because he kind of just settled things down after that and got everybody to say, OK, let's remember we're all Chicagoans. We're all here and we got to work together. And I think he's maintained that spirit. Now, again, is he a reform guy, a guy who's been in, on the inside for 30 years, a guy who, frankly, was at the table for probably too many, <laughs> too many meetings he shouldn't have been at, from what I hear. But I think he, he, he's a good guy and he served the city well. And, you know, uh, I, you know, but but now Laurie has a big mayor life I should say, I'm sorry, mayor life has a big, big choice ahead of her. All right. Now, uh, we've had this conversation in terms of test scores with the public schools uh, numbers and the way they're used by politicians to make themselves look good. Let's let's flip it to the police. Over the last couple of years, actual the the, the murder rate in the city is declining. The number of people shot is declining. The number of people murdered, killed is declining. Uh, do you attribute that to something that uh, Police Chief Eddie Johnson in particular has done? A couple of things. Um, and I should say that I'm doing some work with some of the violence prevention groups here in Chicago right now. So I just thought I should disclose that. But um, they have brought some great new technology. And I think that started under McCarthy. So let's give credit where credit's due. They brought some great new technology and sort of the, the like the CompStat type approach, which is really about looking at data very carefully, really looking at crime tends, trends and trying to anticipate where the crime will be. And I think they've gotten a lot better at that. So that's one factor. The, you know, I think the equally important one, and again, I, you know, I'm working in this area right now, is that you're starting to you know, engage the community. You're starting to look at violence prevention programs. These are the things where you intervene with kids who are at risk, young men who are at risk. You have community elders. Some of them are ex-offenders ex or formerly incarcerated guys. You have some of those guys helping intervene when they hear about it. You're monitoring social media. You're keeping an eye on what's going on. And you're able to maybe prevent some shootings that otherwise might happen. And quite often they're driven by fairly petty stuff, little Ill insults online, things like that. Um, uh, so I think they're probably all a factor. But the decline, as you know, there was a big spike in 2016, uh, right after McCarthy stepped down or was was stepped down. <laughs> uh, and uh, right after the, the yeah. Laquan video came out mm -hmm. and right after uh, Mayor Emanuel pointed out that, you know, they're all in fetal position and they're not, they're afraid to do their jobs. Did you buy that? And uh, yeah, I think like everything, there's some truth to it. You know, is it a hundred percent true? Was every cop in fetal position? I'm sure not. But were some of them, were they anxious? Were they afraid to be the next headline? Unquestionably. And, but the um, notion of fetal position? Well, it's it's a uh, metaphor. Oh, and I, I don't see. think they were all curled up in their bed. Uh, he was feeling very metaphorical mm -hmm. that yes, day. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, um, mm -hmm. I think that um, 
So the decline of the let, so there was a huge spike that year. We got up to about 760, which as you know, was not the all time high. We were in the 900s during the ni- uh, 1990s. Um, yeah, but we got the 760 killings. But go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got up to, um, you know, 760 killings and something like almost 4,000 shootings. Mm-hmm. So now we're back to basically the pre-2016 level. So we're at 435, 440 shooting, uh, murders, about 2,300 shootings. So we might close the year close to 500 um, homicides, maybe 470. So that's where we were for a decade before 2016. So I would say we're just sort of back to normal. And normal is terrible. Normal is our, our, our murder rate is six times Los Angeles's murder rate. And it's, excuse me, three times Los Angeles's murder rate and six times New York's rate. Mm. So we're not, you know, the last thing we should be doing is sort of saying, hey, it's declining, so let's, you know, relax. We still have a terrible, terrible gun violence problem in Chicago. Peter, why... What do you attribute that to? I've, I've asked this question of so many people who have come on this show, and Mick Dumkey and I have had conversations into the late night on this. Why is Chicago's murder rate so much higher than New York and L.A.? Well, for one thing, they have been investing in violence prevention programs that the city is just starting to do now. So uh, Mayor Manuel created an Office of Violence Prevention, and just so everybody understands, that's about really... That's not about police. That's about community groups and intervention um, organizations and, you know, uh, job training and uh, positive alternatives for young people who are at risk of shooting or being shot. So New York and L.A. were investing in this for years, long before Chicago. Uh, Mayor Emanuel created the office but didn't really put a lot of money into it. Uh, Mayor Life has now proposed upping the budget to about $11 million. A bunch of people are organizing, trying to get her to do 50 million, because we feel like we really need a full court press. The, the entire public safety budget in Chicago is 2.7 billion dollars. 50 million is two percent. So to get back to your question, why do I think it's happening? I mean, you know, I know what I've read from everybody else. I've heard everybody else say that we have a long, long history of gang violence. That's a little unusual, going back to Al Capone and Jeff Fort and Larry Hoover and you know the Gangster Disciples and. The, Blackstone Rangers. We have sort of a gang culture that's a little bit more deeply embedded than it is in other cities. I mean, you've heard of the Bloods and the Crips in uh, L.A., so I just don't know if that answer is adequate. Uh, You certainly have, uh, it seems, more gun trafficking here uh, for uh, a bunch of weird reasons. You know, we are the crossroads of America, so guns come from the South. We are surrounded by you know, very um, uh, states that have very lax gun laws, uh, which is, you know, L.A. is a little further away from a state with a lax gun law than Chicago is from, say, Indiana or from uh, Wisconsin. So I think that's a factor. Um, I think that we have a lot of um, concentrated poverty in Chicago still, and I don't know whether that triggers, triggers bad word, I don't know whether that prompts different policing strategies, a feeling that, like, we're out of our, uh, you know, this is beyond our control. A, there was an old expression in New York, cops used to call when there were gang wars, they'd call it a self-cleaning oven, and they would treat it as like something like, you know what, we're just going to let this war play itself out and let these guys, you know, knock each other off. And uh, I, I, I have no idea whether 
whether there's any truth to that or whether that's a factor, but it does seem that there's a number of factors that make Chicago especially prone to gun violence. And politically uh, speaking, uh, the the Fraternal Order Police, the current union, uh, uh, the, the leader, the current leadership of the Fraternal Order Police has positioned itself uh, far to the right of where anybody in the city is. Uh, they're essentially Trump supporters. They gave a no vote confident, a vote of no confidence to Eddie Johnson uh, because he would not attend uh, the uh, Trump speech. Yeah. And I think the vast majority of Chicagoans, in contrast, were applauding Eddie Johnson for not uh, attending that speech. So clearly, there's a gap between the the rank and file, or at least their union leaders. Their union, which isn't always exactly aligned. Well, we'll get into that with the file. teachers, but yes. uh, uh, but terms with their leadership, they liked them. I mean, they they are the chosen representatives of the police rank and file, and. Uh, so how do you think that factors into all this? Well, I don't know. What is he saying? We should go back to, like, you know, unleash the police and let them do what they want to do. We're, I don't know what we spend in, on uh, police settlements in the last couple of years, $500 million or something like that. So uh, I don't think that police even want that. I don't think they, they get up every day and say to themselves, I just want to go out and beat some heads. Uh, I don't think they especially like a system that holds them accountable for a certain quota or a number of arrests. I think that we should be rewarding them for declines in crime in their sectors. That's what we should be recognizing. Less crime, not number of arrests or how many guys you put in jail, but how much safer it feels to the community and how much safer it in fact is. And, uh, you know, there are a number of neighborhoods where they put that technology in there and where you have that combination of violence prevention programs. And you're seeing, you know, better results. When you say rewarding them, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, start by recognizing it. And then I think uh, to the extent that there's a promotional process in the police department that's uh, not overly political or whatever, you start to recognize the guys who have, who have built that relationship of trust with the community, the guys who have, uh, you know, boosted their clearance rate, not because they beat confessions out of people, but because they have cooperating witnesses. Uh, you know, it, it, guys who set that kind of a tone, that I'm, I'm looking to build relationships with the community, I'm looking to build trust with the community, and uh, when I have something that happens in my community, I want to be able to find my allies and work with them to, uh, to address it. The department ought to be organized to recognize that kind of behavior as opposed to tough guys, because, you know, tough guy policing has a lot of downsides to it. Not to say some people don't value it, and in some situations, you know, you know, a strong, strong police presence is required. But for the most part, I think it, 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 it hasn't been the right strategy. All right, let's move from pol police to uh, teachers, from uh, law enforcement to schools and to education. Uh, we've had, uh, we've d dedicated a lot of uh, talk and coverage for the last two weeks to the teacher strike, uh, and I read your essay that you wrote on it. Uh, in the aftermath, and I have to say, uh, in terms of your worldview, is vastly different than the one generally articulated by me. So why don't you give it a, a opportunity? Folks may not have read it. Uh, first of all, tell folks where they can read it so they can go read it themselves, and then uh, sort of summarize your view of the teacher strike. Yeah, I, I wrote a um, uh, sort of a 
post-mortem about the strike on Education Post, which is a website uh, of an organization I founded a couple of years ago. I'm now on the board. I'm no longer running it, but I do still write for them occasionally. I mean, my basic view was that um, the strike was not necessary uh, and that teachers and kids paid a high price for it. Um, teachers lost six days of pay, and that works out to about $66 million. It's about $11 million uh, for every day. Uh, and that $66 million has essentially funded the, uh, the, the, the money that they wanted for nurses and, and uh, uh, yeah, social workers, librarians, et cetera. So I think in, 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 a, uh, in a sense that money came out of the pockets of teachers. Um, and of course, I think kids lost 11 days of learning in October. And I think all this talk about, you know, makeup days and everything is fine, but a makeup day in, you know, in, in June doesn't really mean nearly as much as learning days in October when you're right at the front end of the school year and the, you know everybody's in full mode and you've gotten over the sort of the opening opening weeks of school and now kids you know they're 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 organized they're learning the teachers are in the groove and then suddenly all that got disrupted so i think kids and teachers paid a high price for this they ultimately accepted the offer that was on the table before the strike 16% in terms of salary. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah, in terms of salary. There yeah. was no offer on the table in terms of hiring more nurses, librarians, and social workers, nor was there an offer on the table before the strike in terms of lower class size, which were the fundamental differences between uh, the teachers and uh, Mayor Lightfoot. Right, and my feeling about both of those issues is they were all legitimate issues, and kudos to the union for forcing them to the table. Is that the right way to resolve those kinds of issues? By law, it is but whatever, the law is one thing. By law, the only thing they're supposed to strike over is salary and benefits. But they did force those issues to the table, and that's to their credit. But how those issues are going to be resolved is a very, very open question. There's a couple of factors. One is, is that most of the overcrowding is in the black and Latino, I mean, is in the white and the Latino schools. And it's, they're over-enrolled. And they don't have extra classroom space to, say, just start another third-grade class. Um, it, you know, you can do that in under-enrolled schools, many of which are in the African-American community. So it's going to be difficult for them to actually solve the class size issue. Having said that, there's going to be more money for teacher aides. There will be more money for more class, for more teachers if they have the classroom space and can work it out. So that's one issue. The issue on the um, nurses and social workers, librarians, um, there's one, one issue there is that apparently they have a challenge trying to fill those positions, people who are willing to take those jobs, uh, especially in, you know, really, um, you know, socially challenged uh, schools. Uh, but nevertheless, the money is there and it's available and that's a good thing. Um, what, one kind of uh, dimension of this that's worth noting is that, you know, if you're a principal, you're given a budget. And you said, you know, use the money as best you can. And the, the CPS gives a lot of flexibility to principals to say, you know, you think you need a, a, a social worker or maybe two? You should be, have, be able to do that. On the other hand, maybe you don't need one. Maybe you need one half time or maybe you don't. Or, well, or, you know, same thing with a nurse. Maybe you have a whole lot of kids who need a lot of nursing attention. You have a big school. You need a full-time nurse. Maybe two. On the other hand, maybe you have a small school. Maybe it's a small school with not a lot of issues. And you're now going to be required to hire somebody that, so it's, it's, you know, that you know, might not be busy all the time. So they took away a little flexibility for principals. 
So I don't know what the how that'll work out and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But no question about it, the strike for CPS to come to the table and make some concessions on those issues. And I think that's a good thing. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, just being in this room with me has softened you up because you were not nearly as no, conciliatory I said, I, no. to the teachers in I, that essay. But I, let me, let I me still ju- think it, the strike was a mistake. I think those are the kinds of issues that adults are supposed to work out at the table. And, and, and I agree with you. Oh my! I agree with you so much. So and you agree with me, and I agree with you. What's yeah. going on here? Well, no, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, hold I, on. And here's enough. the problem. Here, here's the problem. Uh, Lori Lightfoot ran on those issues, right? And, and my does anyone opinion, think Lori Lightfoot's against no, nurses and social workers? But yeah. well, okay. I don't think no. I don't think Lori Lightfoot has something against uh, nurses and social workers. But until the teachers went on strike. Until the teachers forced her to deal with the issue of a lack of nurses in the school, that was not on the table. And I don't understand how it could be. It was in the budget. It just wasn't in to the extent they wanted. Well, now, Peter Cunningham knows more than anybody in the city of Chicago about the difference between contractually obligating a school system to hire somebody and putting positions in a budget. Putting positions in a budget is an age-old trick that budget managers, and Peter knows this even better than I do because he was on the inside. I'm trying to figure it out from the outside. What they do is they put positions in a budget it, draw the salary so they can go pay for something else and they never hire it. How did you become so cynical after all these years in journalism? I thought that I thought you were an idealist. <laughs> I am an idealist. I just uh, see the world as I'm trying it really to figure is. That out myself. Try to, I see the world as it is and try to change it. So anyway, uh, until the teachers went on strike, the um, the, the city powers, uh, the Lori Lightfoot and the Board of Education and the larger civic and corporate community was not championing the issue of nurses in schools and librarians in schools and lower class size. It took teachers to go on strike. And your last point is a very good one that even I hadn't thought of. Now, now I'm going to have to give you credit for it. Not only did the teachers f- force the mayor and her allies to deal with issues that they were ignoring, but they paid for it. You talk about generosity that sometimes in the Tribune's editorial boards uh, were writing, shut up and take the money, and the teachers want to strike anyway for an issue that was not their paycheck. They ended up underwriting it. I'm waiting for that Tribune or sometimes editorial to thank the teachers of the city of Chicago for, one, forcing Lori Lightfoot to do the right thing. I give her credit for doing the right thing. It took a little forcing. And, two, for subsidizing it. Well, if they didn't go on strike, they wouldn't be subsidizing it. But would they have gotten it? That's your question. You they wouldn't you have gotten you, it. You don't think they would have gotten progress on that issue? No. Absolutely. Uh, I, they weren't even on the table. See, I, I feel differently. You well, have, let me ask you this, Peter. You, in, in your position in, in politics, and you've watched politics in the city of Chicago go back to the 90s, under Daley, under Rahm, have you ever seen a mayor make a concession that he wasn't forced to make? In a uh, bargaining agreement that didn't require a strike, you mean? In anything. 
if a mayor, when did a mayor ever say, you know what, Pete? I'm going to call you out. I want you to write this speech. Nobody's putting any pressure on me to spend money that I could spend uh, on X, Y, Z, on poor kids. But I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's the right thing to do. And good golly, I just feel like doing the right thing. I mean, uh, we had 25 <laughs> years of labor peace, uh, 22 of them when Daly was the mayor. He made loads of concessions about salaries and everything. They, for the most part, he gave generous salaries. Almost every single year, he raised taxes to the cap for the schools. So, you know, I, I, I just think that there was an attitude then that like, okay, let's work this out. Let's figure out how to do this. Let's get it done. And, and all of these issues, despite what's in the contract, despite what's in the budget, despite what is written down, despite what has been reported in the paper, all of these issues are still going to require people to sit down together and say, listen, how can we do this? Mm -hmm. Okay, we can't find enough psychologists to put one in every school. So how do we work this out? So for this year, can we have a couple of rovings? Uh, you know, they, they're just going to have to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it should be. And one of the points I made in my piece was, so we have lots of challenges in the Chicago public school system. We have under-enrollment. We have accountability uh, systems that are complicated. Um, and we were a subject of a big fight. Uh, or, uh, they, they were an issue during the negotiations, although SQRP, which is the name of the accountability system, still is in, in force. All of these issues have to be worked out. They still have to be worked out that way. But are we going to have five years of every interaction between CTU and CPS or between CTU and the mayor is an accusation or a grievance? Is, like, is that like the only form of conversation we're capable of? Accusation or grievance? Because if it is, that's not good for well, anybody. Well, it's a two-way street it now. Uh, and and when have you heard Mayor Lightfoot or Janice Jackson say anything like that sounds like a, a grievance or an accusation? I mean, they, they've, been, they've been absolutely respectful. They keep on offering. They were offering olive branches that's not true. to the union throughout the negotiation. That, and they, they offered the teachers. Here's the way, way it went down. They offered the teachers a raise. The teachers said, we want to deal with these uh, non-salary issues. They said they weren't going to deal with them. The teachers went on strike, and they suddenly dealt with them in the midst of the strike. Lori Lightfoot said, I'm not going to bail out uh, the, the, the public schools of Chicago, which I would think is a very revealing comment. Uh, it's one that's rhetoric that would come right out of Bruce Rauner's playbook, not the Democratic, uh, liberal or lefty or whatever she is, progressive mayor of the city of Chicago. Very disappointed but with that But she guy. is. That is what she is. She's a progressive mayor. Yeah, but but you, you asked, and I'm just pointing out some evidence, that she's human. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, and I've criticized them for this, went in way too hard for Tony Preckwinkle in the mayoral runoff. They didn't endorse your candidate either, Bill Daly. Uh, and I uh, just had to slip that in there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I do believe their rhetoric was over the top. But Lori Lightfoot is a, a grown woman. And, you know, okay, how long do you, do, you, do you stay mad at somebody? Maybe, okay, you let a week go by, Peter Cunningham? Where's the Peter Cunninghams in the world telling Lori Lightfoot, call Stacey Davis Gates. Go have coffee with Stacey Davis Gates. Break bread. You were always a that guy. Why didn't they do that right after the election? Okay, they endorsed Tony Preckwinkle. She lost big time. So why didn't they then call over and say, hey, we'd like to sit down and meet? The way they know? tell the story, they tried to, uh, and they were rejected. Really? Yeah, wow. that's how they tell the story. Yeah. I do know one thing, that Lori Lightfoot never made any kind of uh, overture on her own. And 
there was never any attempt. You talk about grown-ups in a room. You're absolutely correct. I agree 100% with you. So where were the grown-ups in the room? And let's say Lori got elected in April, in May, to sit down and say, what are your issues, Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis-Gates? Well, we care about having lower librarians. Well, that's an interesting issue. I, I campaigned on that. We have something in common. Here's my good friend Peter Cunningham. Maybe he can work a deal. And my understanding is, is that they put some of that money in the budget. It wasn't enough to please them. But it's not as if Janice Jackson wasn't talking about the issue during the budget uh, round in, in, in May and June, right? It just wasn't enough for them. No, but you're you're but, now what you're doing is a, is a very clever rhetorical move here. You're not directly answering the question I asked you, which is you said where are the grown-ups in the room? And so what what you're describing is a situation where the uh, the mayor's uh, educational appointees instead of meeting with the heads the head of the teachers union. You're saying that the mayor's educational appointees refused to meet with the union all summer? Absolutely. No, I, I believe that is not true. I believe uh, no, I'm saying that Lori Lightford herself did not make a positive step. That, uh, how do you know what happened what happened? I mean how do you know she didn't how do you know that she didn't call over and how do you know she didn't offer to meet? How do you well, know she didn't have her 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 people say, you know, and I'd like to Connect with. I I've mean, heard I, from I both know. sides I mean, of this, on the, of both sides of the of the equation in this one. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I don't work for Lori Lightfoot. No. Just to be clear, and I want to make sure your listeners know that I don't work for this administration. And you did not work for Rahm Emanuel. And I did not work friends. for Rahm Emanuel. Uh, and but I. And since you pointed out that the CTU didn't endorse my candidate, I have one question for you. Go ahead. Why aren't they sponsoring your podcast? All right, that's a good question. I mean, you got. You got. You got. <laughs> that's uh, a good Question. You got three other unions yeah. sponsoring it. Four, uh, yeah, but four. whatever. That's a great question. Can you say that again? No, just kidding. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I believe that the point that you made is a very good one. Uh, that uh, there were not people were not acting like what did you what was the word you use like grown ups in the room that was and uh, so as a result we lost a lot of time and a lot of antagonism now here we are right now we, they here, cut, but here, here we are you're exactly right here we are and my point is this okay it's over we've had our strike there's been some blood on the floor no question about it we had our election there was plenty of blood on the floor there uh, certainly there were some hard feelings uh, on both sides about the election but here we are now, are we going to work together? You know, CPS just announced a $135 million curriculum initiative. And the purpose of this is to help teachers, to reduce the burden on teachers who spend Saturdays and Sundays and evenings on online trying to prepare lesson, lesson material, uh, lesson plans. And the idea is, how do we help them? How do we create curriculum and create lesson plans so that teachers don't have to do that? That's a great initiative. It's only going to work if they're actually sitting together and working together on it and not pointing fingers and not grieving each other and, you know, just working together. How do we look at the under-enrollment issue? I mean, the, the, the student population is down to 360 and it's projected to keep going down. Everybody knows, with, you know, how painful it was for all those school closings in 2013. But what are we going to do about the fact that the student population keeps on declining? You know, we, we can either demagogue the issue or, or we can work together on it. What are we going to do about accountability? What are we going to do about, you know, 
all kinds of issues. Yeah. Discipline, you know, student discipline. How, yeah. how do we do that together? And that's a valid point. And of course, uh, I'm not, I don't want to be a demagogue, but part of the reason why population is falling is that the cities become more expensive. So I'm sure you totally agree with me that we should stop doing a subsidizing a massive uh, upscale developments like Lincoln Yards in the 78. Is that what's causing the city well, to be so partly, expensive? Uh, partly. It drives up the cost of housing in the city. And it drives up uh, the, it definitely drives up property taxes. Every time you create uh, a TIF district in a gentrifying area, you're preventing the Board of Education from taxing the growth in that area. You know this as well. I taught you TIFs. The and theory so, is that it generates growth that otherwise might not be there, as you know. Yeah, that's but the theory. We could, we could have the TIF debate forever. But, but just so the point is, just so we know, understand the impact it directly has on a property property taxpayer, the extra money that would flow to the Board of Education uh, from a TIF district is, uh, would that happen for 23 years. So for 23 years, the Board of Education is unable to tax the uh, the new property. To capture the growth. To yes. capture the growth. And as a result, they have to raise their property taxes throughout the city of Chicago. So it's a tax hike. So it makes the city more costly. Your property taxes, where you live, in wherever through you live. Through the roof. Are through the roof. Right. In part because of the tips. You're welcome. For, you're welcome for me. I and in part because of these wonderful contracts that we've all agreed on. So they, they're all part of the issue, they're right? All part of the they're issue. They're all part of, you know, the cost of running government goes Fair. up. You I support what? more taxes. I'm for, I'm I'm 100% in support of it. Wow. Just to know. <laughs> just to be really clear. I'm not complaining. Not He's not running for office anytime I'm so. not complaining I, about it. I, and I'm, I'm, I support the higher salaries for teachers, even though I often point out that, relatively speaking, relative to teachers around the country, and even many of them in the region, not all of them, they're pretty well paid, they have pretty good pensions, lifetime earnings probably in the neighborhood of about $4 million now when you add up their salaries and their pensions, assuming they live to the normal uh, uh, age. So... But I support it. I, I 100% support <laughs> All right. paying teachers well. Okay, I'm going to let him get the last, because I'm a generous guy. I'm going to let Pete get the last word on this local issue. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about national issues, the lessons learned uh, from Tuesday's election going forward. Because one thing Peter Cunningham and I do agree on, we both want a new president in 2020. That's one thing we do agree on. We'll be right back. That's after. correct. <laughs> The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu masters. Hey, podcast fans, the Chicago Sun-Times political web series, The Fran Spielman Show, is now available as a podcast. The Fran Spielman Show features weekly interviews with the lawmakers, journalists, and others who are shaping our city. I don't know if you knew this about Fran or not, but Fran holds nothing back. She goes deep into City Hall to bring you the real scoop on Chicago politics. And right now, you can listen to her show on all of your favorite podcast apps. Head to City Hall with Fran. She's going to be in our studio tomorrow recording a brand new episode. Who will be the guest? Oh, you're going to have to wait to find out. But you can get even more great political coverage now from the Chicago Sun-Times with the Fran Spielman Show. Listen and subscribe now at suntimes.com forward slash Fran hyphen show. One more time, that's suntimes.com 
forward slash Fran hyphen show. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Peter P.C. Cunningham, my guest, political strategist, political speech writer. Wrote, uh, he probably wrote Daly's best-known speech. Well, no, it's not best-known anymore, Pete. Only old-timers like me remember. But you wrote the his 20... 21, whatever it was, 20, 2010, I'm getting my uh, years mixed up speech, where he talked about expanding number of schools. Chicago's the first move toward charter schools, but we're going to move away from it. Renaissance 2010? Renaissance 2010, that's it. You wrote well, that, that hold on, that was in 2004, and charters started in the 90s. Wait, but time out. I know, I understand, but you wrote that speech, correct? Probably, yeah. Yeah, prob- probably. <laughs> well, I, I can't remember. I wasn't really a speechwriter at that point. I was working for Arnie, but I think I probably I think you did write hand that in speech, that one. Yeah. Cuz uh, I remember uh, writing about it and giving you a hard time about it. Anyway, all right. Uh, let's move forward. Let's talk national politics. You are you follow it as closely as I do. And on uh, Tuesday there were uh, two significant uh, elections. Uh, one in the, the state elections in Virginia, the Democrats took the House and the Senate. They already control the governor's uh, seat. I think uh, so. Now they get to draw the maps. I think you and I agree on that one. Good. Uh, and fair maps. What a joke. Let's throw that out the window right now. Um, suckers game. Yep. And uh, we're out eye on that one. Uh, all the good government people in the state of Illinois who are trying to get us to do a fair map deal. Uh, are just basically doing the Republicans. Right, everyone's for reform when you're on the losing side, and then when you're on the winning side, you're like, sorry. Yeah. Now, (laughs) revenge. Revenge is the opposite of reform. Yeah. (laughs) It's the other side of the coin. Yeah, that is true. Right. Uh, All right, so there was that, and then, of course, there was the uh, victory. Kentucky, right? And Bashir's in Kentucky beat uh, Matt Bevin, the Republican incumbent, even though Donald John Trump had gone to Kentucky on Monday, the day before, and said, this is all about me elect uh, Bevin to send a message to those dastardly Democrats. Right. Well, I'm, I hope he's right on that particular point that this was a message about him. But it was more than that. Um, and I read a fair bit about it today. First of all, I guess Bevin still hasn't conceded, right? And it, it's less than a, a point, so there's going to be a re, recount. Uh, I even saw one story about how the Republican legislature was saying, we may have to decide yeah, this. Yeah, saw that too. What a bunch but anyway, of pirates. Yeah, I know, a bunch <laughs> of pirates. Yeah, total crooks. But um, uh, I think um, th- th- there are a couple of factors. I hope that Trump, uh, rejecting Trump was a factor, but I'm not sure it was. He, he, won, he won the state by 30 points. But um, Bevin was very unpopular one of the most unpopular governors in the country, maybe the most. His, his approval rating was in the 30s after one term. But And one of the big reasons was because his policies were so um, uh, cruel and abusive to regular folks. I mean, he was going after uh, health care costs for poor people, uh, Medi- Medicaid. He was trying to cut Medicare. He was trying to cut retirement savings, retirement money. He... He's, you know, I keep saying this over and over and over again to everybody in the Democratic Party. We have to focus on bread and butter issues. Job, home, health care, education, retirement, my big five. That's what you got to focus on. And, um, you know, I think that was a big factor in this election. Uh, Bashir was focused on those issues, was going right at Bevan for putting those issues at risk. And the Republicans have been putting those issues at risk nationally and in states all over the country for a, a long time. Sam Brown back in, in Kansas and people like that just just taking away uh, things that people need and distracting them with the, you know, the cultural debates about you know, uh, reproductive rights or gun rights. 
uh, you know, that's a big distraction while they're simultaneously cutting taxes to an, a, an unhealthy amount, they're literally starving government and taking away the basic safety net that people rely on. And in places like Kentucky, there's a lot of people who rely on that. Wait, where were the five? I, I want Job, home, health care, education, retirement. What do you mean by home? I mean quality, affordable housing. Housing mm-hmm. is what I mean. Uh, I'm just trying to keep the words simple. But, you know, affordable housing, health care, and education, all three of those are now becoming about affordability. Well, uh, when you especially, see... All right. So when you take into consideration the fact that uh, uh, Matt Bevan, the incumbent governor, Republican... Uh, in Kentucky was so unpopular. Uh, does that detract from the Democratic victory? In other words, are there lessons that you can draw from Kentucky that could be applied to November? Or do you just look at it and say, yeah, Bevan, it was just a one-shot deal. Bevan's unpopular. There's really nothing we can do uh, in states like the Kentucky or in areas like Kentucky in Michigan or Wisconsin, et cetera. I would not say that. I think that I think that um, I think Tony Evers up in Wisconsin uh, brought that back into the Democratic uh, camp by focusing on bread and butter issues. I think Alexandria Ocasio Cortez got elected on bread and butter issues. She was talking about health care and jobs. Uh, so uh, you know, I think that every time we forget about this and think it's about something else, uh, we lose. And so. I hope that that's the lesson everybody takes from it, that we can win anywhere if we really rebrand ourselves, not as the party that's trying to be everything to everybody, uh, all things to all people, but as the party that's really, really focused on the little guy, on the American dream, on the middle class promise, on making the basics you know, possible for everybody. It doesn't mean we can't try and tackle climate change, which I think in many ways is an economic issue and a healthcare issue as much as... You know, uh, you know, it's not just some liberal issue. It's actually going to affect our lives. It's going to affect our jobs. It's going to affect everything uh, and our health, of course. Um, but I think that we have to remember that that's what most people are thinking about every day. How do they live? How do they afford health care? How do they do they have enough money to retire? Mm-hmm. You know, does their job pay enough? So to me, I'm really, really focused on income inequality. I think that's a obviously a huge issue for Democrats. And if we can, you know, connect with, with, with voters on that. And it's more than just minimum wage, you know. It's equal pay for women. It's equal pay for people of color. It's equal pay for, you know, uh, LGBTQ folks. It's, it, it, it's all these issues. Economic issues are always, almost always, the number one issue. Yeah, and they work the best for Democrats. Now, let's go they back They work to, the best for Democrats. Uh, when, you, when you talk about health care, how far, in your humble opinion, should the Democrats go on this issue? Elizabeth Warren has just come out with her Medicare for all plan. Bernie had already had his. Uh, then, you, of course, you had the, uh, the Amy Klobuchar's, uh, the primary, and the Pete Buttigieg is saying, let's not go too far. Public option, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to hurt ourselves politically uh, by going too far. So what's your, what's your stance on this? Oh, I'm for public option as a path to uh, more and more people getting on to, uh, you know, as getting us closer and closer to a single-payer system. I think that uh, it's just practically speaking and politically speaking impossible to tell everybody, you're losing your private health care and we're all going on government health care uh, quickly. Tomorrow. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just don't think it's practical. And I don't think it's politically smart. 
but I think that a public option is a great solution. And, you know, I, I kind of feel there's a little falseness going on with the debate uh, on two fronts. One is that if, if Elizabeth Warren, President Elizabeth Warren was presented with a good public option bill, she'd sign it. And if Pete Buttigieg was presented with Medicare for All, passed by Congress, he'd sign that too. So they're all saying what they'd prefer, but the truth is they want the same thing. They want more people to to um, to get health care, and they want to lower costs. That's the piece that I think is um, less clear from anybody. Like, no one quite knows how to get rid of it. If you did Medicare for all, you'd theoretically have a smaller bureaucracy because everything would be covered, or pretty much everything would be covered. So you wouldn't have all these forms and all these people working for doctors who are saying this insurance plan covers it, but that one doesn't. There's a ton of, the, the two big cost factors in healthcare, as I've read, are bureaucracy, administrative costs, and drug prices. And I don't know whether, I think Medicare for all, or I think you know a, a bigger government role in controlling drug prices is needed. I don't quite, fully know how it works. Maybe we negotiate prices, things that I guess Canada does that we don't do. But um, not an issue I'm an expert on by any means. But I'm, I'm for right now in 2019-20, I'm for the public option. And my hope and expectation is that more and more people will migrate to it and we'll get to you know something closer to a, a single payer system over time. Peter, how do you have your health insurance? I have it through an employer. And that started two, uh, five days ago. Up until then, I had it through COBRA. Before that, I had it through uh, Education Post employer. Talk about COBRA, having it as COBRA. Very expensive, $4,000 a month. I mean, it's a huge amount of money. Um, and uh, I've had some very serious health issues in my family. Uh, and we had some very expensive treatments. Um, I won't go into details, but, but uh, you know, it was a ridiculous amount of money. So, Costs are the big, big issue. And I, I, before I forget, I want to get back to one other point. Um, Senator Warren is taking a lot of heat over the cost of her plan, $20 trillion. So right now, Americans are spending 3 to $4 trillion a year on health care. The total bill, some of it comes from co-pays, some of it comes from employers, some of it comes in Medicaid and Medicare, so that comes from taxes. Some of it comes maybe from other places, I don't know where. We are already spending 3 to $4 trillion. Multiply it by 10 over a decade, that's 35 to 40 trillion. People are yelling about Elizabeth Warren's plan is going to cost $20 trillion. I don't know. That's what we're spending anyway. Yeah, no, it's, so, uh, you know, the, the, the private insurers are already spending a trillion a year to insure people. So they're just going to pay that in taxes instead of that. So I kind of feel as a disingenuous debate attacking her on her costs. She's going to, we're going to, you know, give health care to just as many people, maybe even more, if we had Medicare for all. Well, that disingenuous, yes, indeed. And that's generally how uh, uh, the discussion goes down uh, when it comes to health care, because you have to you, you have to attack it in such a way that gets distracts from the central problem, which is that many people can't afford health care, that you have a, right. your position. You left a job, so you know, because you had your health care with your your job so that you have to pay for it. Yeah. So that's utterly insane. I was uh, consulting for a couple of, for about a year. But, but Freelance consulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was paying for my own health care. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, fourth grand a, a month is ridiculous amount of money, yeah. So uh, I, 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 I'm with you. I remember when Obamacare passed, uh, my friends on the left who were for single payer said, this is an evolution. You watch. This movement is not, this is not going to satisfy 
uh, the need that we have in this country. This is the first phase. And your good friend Rahm Emanuel made that point <laughs> in uh, The Atlantic uh, when he, he just reminded people that, yeah. and I, I, I can't remember all the details, but we started, the government got into the healthcare business in the 30s. Yeah. Got its toe in the water. Mm-hmm. Then in the 60s, Medicaid, Medicare came, came along. Then in the 70s or 80s, uh, CHIP, Children's Health Insurance Program, came along. Mm-hmm. And then in the 2000s or with Obama, we had Obamacare. So it's like we've, we've done it this way, this way, this way. So, you know, it's been a step one at a time. Well, speaking of my good friend, uh, Rahm Emanuel, he... Uh, had, Take a chill pill, man. Oh, sorry, Rob. Uh, he had he made some comments during the. Um uh, I, I can't remember which debate it was. I've lost track of all the debates, Peter. Uh, where he said that the 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 Democratic Party should not uh, focus uh, on its base; it should reach out and try to get those swing voters to come over and vote for them because the base will be fired up for Donald Trump. Uh, because they hate Donald Trump. That was his analysis. We've been talking about that uh, ever since with various people coming into the studio, get their thoughts on that. When I look at Kentucky, two things. One, it was an unpopular uh, uh, Republican governor. governor. But two, the teachers unions, the teachers unions that sort of get bashed here in the city of Chicago by many of my centrist friends, the teachers unions of Kentucky went all out for Bashirs. That was rallying the base at its base with good old fashioned organizing, door knocking and fundraising, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, it was both. And why do we have to choose? I mean, we well, need both. That's what my right. point. Yeah. So, and so, you know, why do you have to choose? But I can tell you, if you talk to Sherry Bustos, Congresswoman of Western Illinois, runs the DCCC, mm-hmm. she, you know, she wants the conversation to be about bread and butter issues. It's her job to protect those 40 seats that were flipped last year and uh, in, in, yeah, in 2018. And, um, she, you know, she wants to focus on bread and butter issues. And if we don't, her view is we're going to lose the House. And if we lose the House... And obviously lose other things or don't win the Senate and, God forbid, reelect Donald Trump. You know, we're, we're, we're really facing the nightmare scenario of all time. So her view is, you know, please stay focused on the bread and butter issues and don't get too far out there on whether it's issues I fully support, whether social justice issues or sort of more what's called identity politics. You know, stay focused on the swing voters and the middle class and the, just the basics. I, I tend to think that these distinctions are a little uh, exaggerated. I, you know, Which ones? I, I mean, people who focus on the bread and butter issues doesn't mean those are just swing voters. Everybody has bread no, and butter bread and butter issues. issues would have fired up people, let's say, in Milwaukee, when we talk about yeah. uh, the, why did Hillary Clinton lose Wisconsin to Donald Trump? Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason was that there was such a low turnout in Milwaukee. And Detroit and Philadelphia. Well, that's, okay, that gets into Michigan and Pennsylvania. Correct, yeah. yes. And uh, so you need the those bread and butter issues uh, would fire up those voters as well, but you have to do it in such a way that make people think that it does apply to them, that they will be the beneficiaries right. of... So you take an issue like guns. So there's an awful lot of Democrats, me among them, who think we need much tougher gun control, right? Uh, Sherry Bustos would tell you, please don't come out to Western Illinois or Central Michigan or Western Pennsylvania and talk about those issues because that issue alone will will prevent them from hearing you on the bread and butter issues. So, so those are the kind of challenges we have. 
You know. All right. Uh, and uh, the last time we were in the show, I asked you which candidates you were leaning to. And I, you made, I think he said three. Am I right? Did he, did he say three? I think, let me see if I can do this from memory. It was um, Warren, Biden, and Buttigieg. Am I right about that? Uh, maybe, maybe. I, Where are you I, at I, now? I have, um, and I, 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 you know, like you, I heard you talking about how you got a soft spot for Joe Biden. I do too. <laughs> I have a but I, um, yeah, I don't know but, why. <laughs> uh, before we started the show, I talked about how I really, really felt like, uh, you know, he's not going to represent change for a lot of people. And he's been around an awful long time. And people almost always look for something that looks and feels different. And I have a hard time imagining how he'll do that. Uh, I'm super impressed by Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Um, and if she's the candidate, I'll give her everything I have to support her. Uh, I, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg's politics, first of all, I think he's a gifted, gifted politician. He's really um, articulate. Uh, he does his homework. Uh, he knows his issues. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited by both of those uh, campaigns. I'm, I would not say I'm a Bernie guy. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's a big surprise. Yeah, and it's not that I don't like him or anything. Uh -huh. I, I, I actually um, thought... You know, he pulled the, the conversation in 2016 to the left, and that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I just never saw him as electable, and electability is important. Uh, and I still don't. I still think he wow. can easily be caricatured as, you know, someone who's out of touch with the vast majority of America. Well, you know, to quote your uh, Mayor Pete, back to you, uh, they're going to do that to all of them. They are. And uh, so it really doesn't matter. You might as well be the real deal. I know, but it, but it doesn't resonate. Um, it doesn't resonate when you're talking about Biden, for example. It doesn't resonate when you're talking about Buttigieg. Well, I would make the argument that the fact that they would go hard at him uh, for being exactly what he is would resonate with people who do care about bread and butter issues because he is all about bread and butter issues. He is. He is championing everything you've named, everything you mentioned, health care, yep. inequality, inequities, uh, yeah, job inequality. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He, that's Bernie. You yep. know what I mean? So uh, it, you could argue that if it's a phony assault, if you try to make Pete Buttigieg into Che Guevara, OK, then that just shows you're a bunch of frauds. But yeah. if you, if it's like Bernie, Bernie would be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah, no, I mean, to his credit, he's he's as honest as can be about what he stands for and who he is. He's not pretending to be anything other than who he is. I saw a great quote from um, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, be careful who you pretend to be because that's who you are. Whoa, man. And, that's Kurt Vonnegut. And, <laughs> or because that's who you will be. Or something yeah, like and and that's I, pretty I think good. that, you know, uh, wow. both Bernie uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are... Uh, I think, very authentic to themselves. I don't think they're making it up. And that's not true of a lot of candidates who, you know, one minute want to sound like they're tough on crime, then the next minute they want to sound like they're, you know, all about restorative justice and, you know, criminal justice reform. And then the minute after that, they, you know, they're sort of, you know, Wall Street Democrats, and then they turn around and they're sort of, um, you know, raise the minimum wage Democrats. And, it, it, you know, I, I just think people sometimes... 
uh, trying on a lot of different costumes in the middle of these campaigns. All right, I think that's as good a, a place as ever to cut it off because that's as close as Peter Cunningham will ever come to giving a shout-out to Bernie Sanders. I think the next time Peter comes in here, he's going to be wearing a Bernie Sanders T-shirt. If, if he's the nominee, I'll vote for him. I'll even give him some money. I'll say that. I'll, you, know, you know me. I'll vote for anybody over this guy. Would you go knock on doors in Michigan Absol- and Wisconsin for Bernie Sanders? Absolutely, if he's the nominee. But you're asking me who I support in the primary, right. and he's not my first choice. Right. <laughs> but, but, you Second know, he, he's interesting because he, he seems to motivate people from different segments. So, you know, sometimes he's got young people. Sometimes, like you say, he's got kind of bread and butter older guys. Yeah. Uh, he's certainly got old lefties for sure. <laughs> but then he's got, like, young lefties. Yeah. Uh, so he's, he's a fascinating character, and he's, he's enriched the debate. So... And I you would know. say he's got some on the right, too, the whole blow up the system, uh, you know, uh, people there. He's got some on the right. Correct. Yeah, the, no, yeah right. I think there are there are there are Sanders Trump voters. I mean, yeah. or Sanders, you know, <laughs> there no, really are voters who would. Uh, yes. Could or, or maybe there'll be Trump Sanders voters, people who voted for Trump. Who will now vote for Sanders? For Bernie. Oh, you know. All right, uh, Peter Cunningham is going to be a regular. He promised on our show. That's correct. Uh, thank you, uh, Robert Mueller. So uh, thank you for showing up today. We'll bring him back next week. Uh, ne- excuse me, next month as well. Uh, so I, I won't see you before then. He'll bring his guitar. He promises. Right. None of this weaseling out of with the guitar thing. He played a John Sebastian song the last time he was on. It would have been perfect for him to have played a Dylan song this time because Bobby D was just in Chicago. So maybe when you come back. Uh, next month in December, you'll bring your guitar and do a Dylan song. How about that? You got it. And let's see if uh, Peter Cunningham can guess the artist of our song of the day, Ben. Ben sings a song of the day every day. Which is not singing. I don't think you could do this. Well, he's kind of my age, so he's a little younger. But, um, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Torn between two lovers. Feeling like a fool. Who sings that song? Do you know who sings that song? <laughs> I don't. Who is it? Did you recognize the song? I don't. I don't. Oh, my God. Torn between two lovers feeling like a fool. Yeah, and I forget the... Mary McGregor. Yeah, Mary McGregor. It was a, a, I think it's a one-hit wonder from the 70s. I, Who is Mary McGregor? I, it doesn't matter. The point, I was thinking of it because uh, I, well, I, I can't even remember why I was thinking. Oh, no, I know why I was thinking of it. Because I was walking down from the, the train stop to the studio, and I was thinking that I had Miles Lassen from In These Times, who represents the left in the Democratic Party, and I had uh, Peter P.C. Cunningham, who's sort of the centrist of the Democratic Party, and I was thinking, torn between... T-. Anyway, so that's how my mind works. We do have an update before we get out of oh. here. I don't know why, guys, but I'm craving bread and butter after uh, today's interview. Yeah, I know. A lot of bread, bread and, and butter, butter talk. Uh, we do have a... We have to say congratulations to Illinois Democratic State Senator Maddie Hunter, because she was just appointed chair of the Illinois Senate Transportation Committee today. That's right. Now, if you recall, our former Transportation Committee chair, the guy Hunter's replacing, was a fellow by the name of Martin Sandoval. And Ben, uh, what happened to that guy again? Martin's up to his eyeballs and all kinds of federal investigations of wrongdoing. So uh, they, you know, my beloved Democratic Party decided it was a good idea to distance themselves. Uh, That's right. Federal investigations. We're still waiting on all the details on all that, by the way. But hey, Senator uh, Maddie Hunter. Now, my Myself and our host, Ben Jarofsky, we're not going to lie. We don't have a lick of political experience, okay? <laughs> I'm still trying to get Ben to run for that water reclamation gig, though. Come on, man. You love water. I do love water. It's very tasty. Uh, come on. Run for it, please. There's people on the live stream that want you to run for it as well. So, yeah, we don't have any political experience, but Democratic Senator Maddie Hunter, we really think you should run with this advice here. 
Before you do anything in this new position, ask yourself one question. Will the feds raid my office <laughs> if I do this? Yeah. Or, you know, maybe consider working from home. Yeah, that might be a good idea. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for that breaking news. Peter Cunningham, thank you very much. Miles Kampflassen as well. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. Back home in Alton, uh, Peter, I don't know if you know this, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program. You should check it out sometime. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time. Once again, at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. Also on Twitter at Benny J Show. And, well, Ben's in charge of our Instagram account. <laughs> he may check it. He may not. I don't know. He's got awesome pictures on there. The Ben Jarofsky Show, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y, show. See you tomorrow. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.